Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 116 of Real Blend, the podcast with at least 95 fashionable fans sporting incredible charity t-shirts. For that, we thank all of you guys. My name is Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend. I am joined, as always, by Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, Jakey. I'm doing well, brother. You look like a basketball coach. Yeah, I know. You hit me with that one. I figured for once in my life I wouldn't wear a superhero t-shirt and maybe class it up a little bit. Today is literally National Superhero Day. Uh, (laughs) The only time that I don't wear... These days are so stupid. Like You're these, stupid. That like, why are we calling it that? For why, what, 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 so we have excuse to post pictures with celebrities on social media. Oh my God, I hate that photo of you and Stan Lee so much. I hate it. I was going to reply with my picture of Stephen King, but why would I go, why would I go low? I'm going to go high. <laughs> when you can <laughs> go high. Why well, go low when I can just bitch about it later on the podcast? I'm also not in the picture with Stephen King, so your photo is better. So, And rocking his Style Boys shirt, Style Kevin Boys. McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kev. How are you? Sean, how you doing, buddy? Jake, good. good to see you. Gabe, good how you, are you, sir? Great to be on, always. <laughs> I miss you guys. First time, so long much. time. I don't know why I sound like I'm calling into a radio show. <laughs> Uh, the episode Long time listener, first time caller. We're going to be getting to uh, theaters in Jake's hometown of Texas who are deciding they're going to try to open up uh, relatively soon. We're you know what's talk, crazy uh, is that it's actually a state. What? What did I call Texas. it? Texas. <laughs> hometown? <laughs> you know what I mean. Home area. State. Uh, we're right. going to talk about bad education uh, because Gabe and I watched it. And we're going to talk about the Beastie Boys documentary because Kevin watched it. And then we're going to talk about something that Jake watched as well, too. Um, streaming recommendations. Later on in the episode, though, <laughs> return guests Joe and Anthony Russo uh, coming back on the Real Blend podcast to talk about their film Extraction, which is on Netflix with Chris Hemsworth. Hopefully you guys have checked it out by this point. Um, and they talked a lot about the one year anniversary of Endgame and a couple of other couple of other Marvel fun tidbits. Sean, so, uh, yes. Remember that time that the Rousseau brothers thanked us for always asking smart questions? Well, don't give that away, dude. That's like the best part of the interview. What can I t- Every it's time very- I talk about something on this show, you're like, oh, you're spoiling it. Like, yeah, what you're- can I talk about? Um, the, the funny joke I made at the beginning of the show. Remember that. <laughs> about the t-shirts. Oh, was that a joke? Oh, no, never mind. <laughs> Plugs. Uh, reminder, we have a community page over on Facebook. Um, people are always chiming in on that one, posting new topics, and now they're doing a lot of streaming recommendations. They're launching polls and basically uh, forming a much larger community that exists outside of this show. We give them our blessing. If you want to go over there and search for Real Blend Podcast Community on Facebook, you guys can join in, uh, weigh in on the conversations. We are posting... These uh, shows now onto YouTube, which is why you can see us on video. Um, we are in desperate need of haircuts. I, I kill for a haircut right now. Lauren gave me a haircut the other day. Dude, she did a really good it. job with it. Let's see. Take it. a look at. She did a really good job with it. That looks great, Kev. We did a um, really I know, good. I had like a a a, tri- a, clim- a clip or a trimmer or a clipper, whatever yeah. you call it. Um, just did it the other day in the bathroom. It took about thirty minutes, and then the cleanup was awful. And actually, made she... me really know what to do <laughs> you just kind of just oh now again i had a i had a device that had like certain blade levels right so i just kept like trying basically what we did was we took the haircut i cur- i had like five or six weeks ago whatever it was or how long ago that was and we just m- mapped it out with a shorter version really it looks fantastic yeah she did definitely. a heck of a job yeah. lauren lauren crushed it the only problem i will say this i give uh haircutters and haircut places and barber shops 
a, uh, a a round of applause because I don't know how they clean up all that hair every single day. You are going to keep finding that for the next six months. <laughs> the hair cleanup was unbelievable. It was it was an entire job in itself just to clean up my hair. I believe it. <clears throat> and yeah. of course, uh, we are available every place you can find your favorite podcast. I want to ask you guys how you get your um, volume in the front. Uh, this is not for the audio podcast. This is more for the video. But you I guys have pillow. such impressive. I just comb my hair with my pillow in the morning. Just like <laughs> it looks, I, uh, it looks. I amazing. just I wake up every morning with a can-do attitude, <laughs> and it and it must metastasizes uh, in these golden locks. Speaking of can-do, this attitudes. is all CG. <laughs> I thought you were saying speaking of metastasize. This speaking is all mocap. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Circus would be very very proud. No, um, he's in here. Andy, we, say hi. We set up a uh, a can-do. Promotional campaign, uh, t-shirts oh, that we yeah. designed specifically to benefit uh, the Will Rogers Foundation, which is aiding theatrical employees. Uh, we set a goal that was going to take place over the course of um, 16 days of 50 uh, t-shirts, 50 Real Blend t-shirts with the design that we came up with ourselves. Um, we're not taking any of the money from it at all. None of the proceeds go to us. It goes to fund the creation of the t-shirt and then everything else goes right to Will Rogers. We also set up a, a way for you guys to follow a link and uh, donate some additional money to Will Rogers if you wanted to. And if you're able to, while you were there, uh, we were so happy that within the first two days of the uh, t-shirt drive, you guys blew past that 50 goal that we set, uh, knowing that we still had 16 days or the, the full 16 days to go. So we internally just talked amongst ourselves and like, well, what should we set the next goal at? And we set it at a hundred. And here we are a week later, still talking about the t-shirt and we're at 95 shirts. Uh, so far we've raised over $1,100, uh, for Will Rogers. You guys have raised over $1,100 for Will Rogers. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of all four of us associated with the show. Thank you guys so very much uh, for being generous. The shirt is a, a limited edition exclusive. It's it's this is the only time we're going to make this particular shirt available. So if you want to grab it, uh, make sure you grab it. We talked about all the proceeds going to Will Rogers and uh, just an incredible response from the blender. So thank you guys so very and much. And also something that's really interesting is that when you go on the site and go to Bonfire, if you scroll down and look at the number of shirts sold, that number right there is uh, from correct me if I'm wrong, Gabe, is the actual number that goes to the the actual uh, charity. So that is after the cost of the shirt, that's after the cost of the production, that is the actual I said actual 35 times. The <laughs> actual number that's going to charity. So And I want to cool know thing. if Kev's mom is going to wear all 95 of them at once or <laughs> Well, she just she <laughs> bought ninety three. Okay, she couldn't afford the other two because you know it's a little you know right now Times are tough. she's trying to save money. You yeah. know what I mean? She yeah, couldn't, yeah, yeah, she couldn't afford the other ones. Wait for that stimulus check to come in. <laughs> She'll buy those last two. Uh, I still have to grab mine. Actually, I haven't yet. So maybe I'll be the ones who push us over a hundred. And then um, you guys, you'll still have that you? link available. I'm sorry, for 116 episodes, you bitch yeah. at people about yes. getting us to 100 and we need you to get us to 100 comments because yeah. I need a nice yes. round number and you Correct. could get us to 100 <laughs> shirts and you haven't done it yet? I'm trying to decide if I want the shirt or not. I'm kidding. I'm suddenly deciding if I want to do this <laughs> podcast anymore or not. <laughs> All right, weekly poll. So I launched this weekly poll because uh, Jake was putting himself on a campaign to get through... Well, what was it? It was like monster movie thing or a John Carpenter Well, thing? I mean, every every weekend I do something different. Uh, uh, three weekends ago, I did a Paul Thomas Anderson marathon. Um, two weekends ago, I did a monster movie th- marathon, which kind of led into like a Rick Baker sort of thing. 
Okay. Um, and then I just started getting into uh, John Carpenter because then I started one of the the movies I didn't get to in my monster movie marathon was The Thing, and then I thought, ooh, like that just makes me want to watch like all John Carpenter Carpenter movies. So, yeah. um, so Gabe and I uh, kicked off uh, the the John Carpenter marathon by watching The Thing. And uh, he he bailed after that, but I kept going for a little bit, and uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot Kevin of fun. Kevin and I weren't invited to that screening, by the yeah. way. Okay, hey, 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 I'm gonna call no. bullshit on that, sir. I'm What's gonna call bullshit Sean, on that. Yeah, is that Sean texted me Friday night, and we were ha- we 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 actually Facetimed about this, and we were just heartbroken. It's amazing Absolutely. that you guys have time to FaceTime about it, but not time to actually respond to my open invitation in which I asked you guys, hey. Who wants to join me and watch the thing on Friday? Mm. In which Gabe responded happily. Also, this is a little bit of a who's on first, who's on second uh, kind of thing. Because I think when Jake or when Jake said it in the text, he didn't capitalize anything. Right. So when he was just like, who he was wants just to watch the, the thing. thing yeah. We were kind of like, what is he talking about? So, <laughs> so actually, about? and that's not a enough, pun. <laughs> we literally were confused. Sean and I had to come up with what we thought the thing was. And we watched our own thing. We did. Yes. Forrest Gump. Yeah, we had a great time. <laughs> it was great. Just we recorded a commentary you track. Going with that. You know what's funny? You like, love honestly, it no, no joke. I so I watch movies. I like having <laughs> subtitles on whenever I watch movies, especially if it's like a great script. Whenever they say the word "thing" in the movie, "The Thing," it's always capitalized in the subtitles. Is really? It? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. cool. Yeah, I like stuff like that. That's that is cool. pretty cool. Uh, all right. So anyway, we launched a uh, a Twitter poll on Friday about John Carpenter, and I'm going to use this format. Um, and it's not an original format. Like people have used this version of a game before, uh, but I'm going to start to make it harder. Whenever we have like a lull and we're not quite sure what the poll is going to be, I'll bring in another director. And the point being, um, I gave you four choices from uh, John Carpenter's filmography. Uh, you can keep only one. And that means that the other three never happened. And so for John Carpenter, I gave you Halloween, the thing they live and escape from New York. And Kevin, do you know which one won, meaning that the other three don't exist? Oh, I mean, I think Halloween would definitely be the winner of that. I mean, I, I, I listen, I think the thing ultimately would probably be, I think, the best movie that Carpenter's ever made. But Halloween, I think, is it needs to happen. I think we had this discussion on chat or we were having a discussion elsewhere. I don't remember who said this specifically, but without Halloween, you got to think about what other movies would be there. The Thing is a remake, and it's a great remake, one of the best remakes ever. But Halloween just uh, just started such a, a a monumental horror movement, I thought, or, or it just it catapulted it, essentially. Well, you're 100% correct, because Halloween got 54% of the vote. The Thing ended up with 31%. Escape from New York got 12%, and then They Live... Three percent, not not fair enough to uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper. I, I gotta be honest, that movie didn't do. I, I watched it for the first time during my marathon. That movie did not, and maybe I was watching it through no pun intended, like through the wrong lens. Um, so like like coming off of of the thing, I don't know. I just it I it wasn't fun enough for me to like be like, oh, this is a fun movie, and then it also wasn't like a serious horror enough for me to like take it as a. I mean, it's like it's like thirty five. It's a ninety minute movie. It's thirty five minutes and forty minutes before he finds the sunglasses. And I mean, doesn't it stand out just for the it. one big fight scene? Like, isn't there a big yeah, well, fight okay, in the so middle? The, the, the Do they live at least? I, no, that's that's a huge spoiler. They don't. Why is the title I, lying? I, I, I feel like the two things it's most known for is that that line. I'm, I'm here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. Yeah, all out of bubble gum. 
um, which is a great line, but it it's was a, a line, line that he like ad libbed because he wanted to bring it in from his wrestling days. And then this like six minute alley fight scene, yeah, which I'd always heard about and never seen. And when it got to it, I was like, okay, here's the fight scene everyone's talking about. Maybe in 1988, that was like what fell under the umbrella of really impressive fight scenes. But after like almost what three decades of, of hearing about how great that fight scene is, and then finally watching it within the context of that movie, sure. I gotta be honest, like, it wasn't yeah, that no, I, Listen, we I, didn't necessarily have John Wick and the raid back in the I 80s. I get that, but like, okay, <laughs> but but I just came off of The Thing, which was made six years prior, and that movie is still impressive. Sure. Well, you know, like, so that, that was one of those things where it's like, well, I need to give it a pass for the time in which it was made, but I was like, but none of the other Carpenter movies of the 70s or 80s need passes, so why do I have to give They Live a pass? Well, this becomes an interesting discussion in general just about how filmmakers decide to use visual effects and which ones have staying power and which ones don't. So, for example, like one of the, one of the best examples ever is Independence Day, unfortunately, does not hold up. Like the visual effects what? in that film just do. I think that the story is fun. I think it's a nostalgia trip. I think the White House miniature blow up looks cool because it's a miniature shot. But the blue screen and green screen and, and and some of that early CG in that film just does not work today. And I think that there are just certain filmmakers. Like, I don't think Roland Emmerich's movies really just hold up. You know, Day After Tomorrow kind of looks kind of cheesy now. They get dated. And I think there's something to be said about that. We can get into this on a, a different discussion about what filmmakers are inputting into their movies, whether it be 70s, 80s, 90s, that had such a staying power. You know, you think of like... Practicality. The word practicality. is Practicality. But what's interesting is Jurassic Park looks better than Jurassic World. And that comes down to the science of whether or not the person used a, a mixture of practical and, and VFX. But to answer your question, like Jake brings up a fight that's supposed to be iconic. I feel like it's it's kind of like a badge of honor if you're able to hold on to that type of like thinking about a fight for 30 something years or however long that that would be out there. Which mo which scenes do you think do sustain that time period? Or do you think there are actions like Mad Max or do you think there are action scenes that you think still fit that oh my god, one the, of the greatest uh, scenes the bank ever. robbery from Heat? That's, yes. That's that's one well, of that's them. A, that's a quarter of a century old. Here's, here's so what I'll great, say. Yeah. In, in some situations, I think people just like like fall under the umbrella of saying it's good because they've always been told it's good. Right. And then I go, and then sometimes it's I like go, like, Kane. is it really though? Yeah. Where it's just sort of like, <laughs> or, or do you really think it's good or have, have you just been told to say that it's good? Well, Citizen Kane, I think, falls in that category because it's one of the greatest movies ever made. And it is from an ambitious and a young filmmaker's perspective and what that filmmaker Orson Welles did to break ground. It's not a movie that I'm going to I'm going to put on all the time. So I think that falls into that type of category. Of, like, but but then you have someone like a Hitchcock or a Vertigo or a Psycho where it does live up to that expectation. Psycho still hits hard. That shower scene is still absolutely terrifying. Yeah. The way it's edited, the way it's shot. And I think that's something to examine in film, right? Like, what is it about certain things that have staying power? Yeah. Why does the Maltese Falcon still work so well today? Why does Mr. Smith go to Washington still work so well today? Why is It's a Wonderful Life still work so well today? I mean, there are just certain things in film history. And what's weird about them is I guarantee you, if you asked every single filmmaker involved in the movies I just mentioned, they would all say those moments were just moments we shot on set that just happened to become classic sequences mm -hmm. or classic yeah. moments. It's almost as if it's the ones that they don't know. It's like you hear an artist or a music who says I wrote my best song in 10 minutes mm -hmm. I remember listening to uh, Chris Martin on 
Howard Stern one day. He like wrote like the best songs of their entire Coldplay catalog in ten minutes. Right. And, and that's what's interesting about it is what things have staying power. I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but back to Jake's point yeah. about the action scene. There are only a certain number of things that do actually live up to that hype that you hear yeah. about all your mm-hmm. life. And it's yeah. interesting. Like Empire Strikes Back lives up to its hype. One right. of the greatest twists ever. Even though we know it, it's still one of the greatest twists of all time. It still hits the way it did in the 80s. And that's something about staying power, which is a, I think is an interesting thing to discuss. Yeah. And I think one of those things that was going to last, too, um, and then I'll throw it to this uh, in a minute, is um, the reaction that audiences had to the uh, portals scene in Endgame. Like, yeah, when we there threw out for the blend game uh, theater experience blend, and, and we'll get to that at the end of the show. A number of people talked about that uh, reaction to just uh, on your left and Black Panther showing up. And um, Jake, even though I know you have problems with the movie, I think you admit that that moment that, works. That movie, that 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 <laughs> moment is a ten out of ten. That yeah. that moment is a is a ten out of ten. And and whatever complaints I have, which are overblown for sake of of, of humor for the show, <laughs> um, uh, I there's no taking away the power of that scene. All right, so I'm going to get to the guys who gave us that scene in a minute. But before I do, I want to get to uh, an update on something we teased on the show a couple of weeks ago, which is a commentary track that the three of us would like to do uh, for the social network. Or the four of us, I think Gabe is going to join us for it. Um, For the social network, David Fincher's film, we put a poll up. uh, You guys voted social network one. We have thankfully uh, been incredibly busy uh, with uh, interviews that we've been bringing to the show for uh, bonus episodes and for additional interview content that we've been doing. And so we're hopefully going to get together uh, this week or next to be able to finish that off. And that'll be something you guys will be able to download uh, like an audio track and then listen to us talk over uh, Aaron Sorkin's amazing screenplay, which seems sacrilegious. Um, But we had a chance to sit down with recently uh, Joe and Anthony Russo. This was one of these um, done online interviews. We reminisced about meeting up with them after uh, they uh, screened Endgame in Washington, D.C., and Kev got to uh, moderate the uh, post-screening Q&A with them, which was amazing. Amazing. Um, We got time to talk about uh, the work that they're doing with Extraction, the anniversary of Endgame, and just the fact that we were so happy to have them back on the show. So without further ado, I want to throw it to our Real Blend interview with... uh, very favorite directors of ours, Joe and Anthony Russo. So, Joe, you introduced uh, Tyler Rake, the character, uh, back in 2014. And I was just curious, what kind of action heroes inspired you while you were coming up with the creation of him, Anthony, you too? And, and why Chris Hemsworth ended up being the right actor to bring this character to life on screen? Well, we've, you know, I think we've said often in interviews that, um, often in interviews that, uh, the uh, the action thrillers of the '70s were a huge influence on us, a very emotional influence. We're, we used to connect with our father uh, by watching The Late Show and you know films like The French Connection and Three Days of the Condor. Our, our love for Three Days of the Condor is um, is expressed in The Winter Soldier, uh, and so we we love action films and we love action films with with damaged, flawed lead characters. And, um, you know, this movie really, uh, endeavors to, um, uh, explore, uh, a character who is a, a physically brave and an emotional coward. It's meant to subvert your, your traditional, uh, um, action hero. Uh, this is, uh, this is a man who's made, uh, some, you know, a very cowardly decision in his past that, uh, that will come back to, to haunt him over the course of the film. Um, and, uh, and you don't often get to see that you don't often get to see, um, action heroes who are, who have suffered real significant emotional trauma. Um, and, uh, um, so that was the intent, uh, and, and, you know, why, um, 
uh, why we, we were so compelled to tell a story about Tyler. Uh, Hemsworth is you know, one of the great movie stars in the world right now. He has incredible charisma and he has, he has a, a really unique gift of uh, expressing vulnerability in a way that invites you into the character uh, and makes you care about him and want to root for him no matter what he's done. Uh, and I think that was very important with this character. He's also, uh, um, really committed on a physical level. When, you know, when we did the Marvel films, we were very, um, it was a priority for us to, uh, to have the actors actually executing as much of the action as possible. Uh, and Sam Hargrave, who worked with us on all of the Marvel films and directed extraction demands the same thing. And he really put Chris through very intense training for this movie. Um, it was the, certainly the hardest thing I think that physically that Chris has done in his career, but I also think that this is a, this is his best performance. I think he's, he's exceptional in the film. You know, Joe and Anthony, this is uh, Kevin McCarthy. I, I just want to say, one, I miss you guys. And two, it's really great to hear your voices. Before I get to my question, I just want to say I miss you guys. So great to talk hey, to you. Man, guys. We miss you too, buddy. We it's miss you to hear your Kevin. voice as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, first of all, uh, the 12 minute wonder is insane. Uh, I've watched all the uh, behind the scenes footage you guys have been posting on Twitter and Instagram. Um, so I wanted to ask you, aside from the extraction, extraction wonder, for each of you, what is your favorite oneer of all time outside of this one, and why? Oh, that's that's a that's a good question. Favorite uh, You want to go yeah. first, Anthony? Or you want me to go first? I can go. I'll go first. Um, it's not you know, it's not an action oneer, but I mean, there look, there's a lot of great ones, but I think the one that had like the biggest impact on me, and it just must have been where I was at the time when I saw it is um the goodfellas water in the in the club the cup of nice. cabana water um and there's just something it's so interesting there's just something that's so elegant about it and it really it was just very visceral and elegant and it sort of brought that whole moment to life in a way that's you know it was kind of unforgettable anyway i'd pick that what about you joe I think that uh, I think you know I think that that reintroduced Warner's uh, uh, in a in a pop culture context, the Goodfellas Warner. You know, it was one that uh, it was it, it was it was the first time I remember that being a collective conversation rather than a film snob conversation. You know, yeah. um, I would say for me, Old Boy. I think the fight at yes. the end of Old Boy is my favorite. Yes, the tracking shot. That shot is so unbelievable i every time i watch it i'm like how did they pull this off in one shot it's insane same here yeah no it's staggering and, and there's real physicality in it i mean it's intense i can't imagine that everyone that, that shot uh unscathed because it's uh it's very physical Hey guys, uh, Jake Hamilton talking to you from Chicago. Good to talk to you guys again. Um, Joe, my question's for you. I want to talk about the difference between uh, writing when you know that you guys are going to be the director versus writing uh, when you're writing for someone else to direct. And sort of about like, do you ever, do you ever get nervous? Whenever you write something, you know that you're directing. You know what you can and cannot pull off as directors. But when you're writing for somebody else, you kind of have to write a sequence just sort of hoping and praying that a director can pull it off the way you hope they can. Is it a little bit more nerve-wracking writing a sequence, whether it be an action or a drama sequence, when you guys aren't going to be the ones behind the camera? We, we tend to only put pen to paper when we're intimately involved with the project. So it's not a, you know, we're not traditionally right for hire guys. It's, it's because we're emotional and passionate about the material. Uh, and you know, when we do something like this, it's with someone that we love collaborating with like Sam Hargrave. 
you know, we've been collaborating, Anthony and I have been collaborating for 25 years. So every day we have to get out of bed and defend our ideas to each other. Uh, and we're, we're, you know, we're, we become very available and open to collaboration with our crews and, 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 and cast, uh, and have for years. And we find that very rewarding as a filmmaker because lots of great ideas come from very unexpected places. So the same is true when you're, you're working on a script here with someone else who's going to direct it. It's just a level of collaboration where you're trying to communicate your vision to a writer, uh, uh, as a writer to them and they're communicating their vision as a director back. It's unique because we're also producing the film and we have a, a core creative relationship with Sam. So um, I, I found that this was, it, it was a, a great experience um, because, you know, scripts are living documents. They have to be organic. They have to change because what you write in your imagination, once you start to execute that in your locations and you're looking at where you're physically going to be executing the storytelling, it changes what you had in your imagination it can improve it. Uh, it becomes more real. Uh, and so as Sam was scouting locations in India and uh, Thailand, he would be communicating them back to me and then we would be incorporating them into the script so that everyone on the, on the film knew exactly what his vision was for the movie. Guys, lately, um, as we've been getting through films in, in major action franchises, whether they be the John Wick franchise uh, the two raid films were getting to the point with action where you get to a, a, a huge body count and you just start to like ask yourself, is someone keeping track of the amount of people who are who are getting wasted in this movie? And halfway through your film, I thought there has to be someone uh, tied to the production who in the notes somewhere has an accurate running body count uh, for, for this movie. Does Did anyone keep track? How do these look on the page? Do you, do you get to a point where you think like, we're throwing too many uh, enemies at Hemsworth. <laughs> well, there's a, you know, for us, it's certainly a hyper, hyper adrenalized story. And that's what, what we liked. We wanted a, we wanted something, you know, super aggressive. It's about corrupt patriarchy and, and this damaged character. And, and so we really wanted to put him in a pressure cooker and intense kitchen and um, uh, heightened level of, uh, of action uh, we do. You, you, everyone keeps track. I think there was something called the Carnage document that that they would that they would keep track of everything that happened in the film. Um, but uh, um, you know, I, I don't. I can't remember who was keeping track of it or where it went. But uh, uh, I know it came across in my emails at one point. I want that on the Blu-ray, please. Yeah, you know. Joe and Anthony, I've told you guys numerous times that the probably one of the greatest theatrical experiences I ever had in my entire life was being in that room when Endgame uh, played at the at the premiere. And and there's nothing better or greater than the theatrical experience. I'm so excited to see Cherry. I can't wait to see what you guys are doing there um, with that film. And I just wanted to get your opinion as producers. I know you've already been asked about when theaters are going to reopen and things like that. But you look you look at the slate of the schedule for the rest of the year and you still see that a film like Tenant, for example, is still sitting there on July 17th. Uh, and I was just curious from a producer's standpoint, does, does that give audiences some type of hope that there may be theaters opening in time for July? I mean, just what are your thoughts on a film like that just staying there on July 17th, knowing what we know? It's very complicated. I think summer, I think you're going to see a lot of movies shift off of dates in the summer. It's very hard for a studio that spent a couple hundred million dollars on a film and then have to spend a couple hundred million promoting it. To then put it in a theater where you you know there's gonna there are gonna have to be social distancing practices, which means that the theater cannot be completely full, right? And in fact, maybe less than half full. Uh, that's just a, that's a difficult economics for a studio. 
um, that means they're going to lose money on that film most likely. So I, I just think it's, you know, everyone's just going to um, uh, play it by year. I think that, you know, you'll find things moving a few weeks out once the, uh, once the advertising spend has to really hit. Um, but, um, uh, you know, uh, it's so hard to say, but I, I just can't imagine that um, we see a very normal theatrical experience this summer. But do you think someone like Nolan has that ability to kind of wait? I, I think he certainly thinks that they'll be respectful whenever he wants to release it. Um, and, and I think, you know, he's probably considering all options at the moment. I mean, look, diversification of distribution is, uh, it, it, it is incredible. It's incredible. It's an incredible gift for storytellers. And it's sad that, you know, some people are reactive against it, but you know, every generation uh, uh, likes to consume their stories in different ways and go back through history and track how it's evolved. Um, you know, thank God we have digital distribution right now. Um, no one could have predicted this, but it, it might become the dominant form of, uh, of receiving uh, a story stories over the next uh, year or two. Uh, and uh, and as filmmakers, you know, we're we're very grateful that that it's available. And uh, you know, I think you may see some some options uh, moving forward where filmmakers make decisions to release uh, digitally because they'll, they'll reach a, a wider audience and they can do it where the audience remains safer. Mm. Guys, we are, um, you know, movie theaters talking about opening back up and chains having to potentially program retro films uh, to lure people back in. Like you mentioned, you know, playing at half capacity theaters, putting old films up on screens and obviously two of the titles that get thrown around a lot would be infinity war and Endgame. Uh, we're a year removed from you guys becoming the highest grossing movie of all time. Congratulations again to that. Uh, I'm so thrilled that you guys have that record, but I'm curious about your thoughts about maybe using those two films to, uh, to go back on screen and coax audiences back into theaters. Well, it's a, you know, theatrical experience is a community experience. And I think that, you know, perhaps the most touching moment of our entire careers was a few weeks ago when the lockdown started and, and Endgame was trending on social media because everyone was uh, um, posting uh, videos of opening night uh, screenings in their theaters with audiences, you know, really uh, emotionally connected to the material. And, you know, for, for us, that's really the, the, um, that's really the, the strength of, uh, of the theatrical experiences that it combined audiences and it combined you globally. Uh, to have been part of movies that that, that did that on, on that scale, uh, with that level of emotional connection from the audience, was really um, was very touching, uh, and will will be the highlight of our careers. So, you know, using uh, those films to to get people back into the theaters, we, we we would be ecstatic. I mean, any opportunity for people to go back and and share in those stories together is uh, is one that we would support. Uh, boy, Silvestri's portals makes me cry harder than when my children were born. So thank you for that. <laughs> for sure. And by the way, that was the last piece of score delivered for the movie. It was right at the last, you know, right up to the last minute because he kept refining it and refining it until it was just perfect. Wow. Guys, uh, speaking of, of Endgame, I think uh, Tony's death is probably one of the most emotionally affecting pop culture deaths that I think I've ever experienced. Um, it, 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 the second that the Endgame was over and people started looking forward to uh, Far From Home, people started questioning, are they going to bring Tony back in some way? A lot of people were predicting that they were going to bring him back um, as like an AI or kind of like the new Jarvis. And I was almost getting mad because I thought like, no, like let Tony 
be dead. Like let that sacrifice sink in for a second. And people are still talking about these hypothetical ways that they could bring back Tony Stark. If they were to do that, if Marvel or a writer were to find a way to bring Downey back, is there any part of you guys that would be a little disappointed? Do you feel like that would sort of dilute uh, the, the the power of, of that moment that you guys built up for so long? I mean, look, it certainly like we've always we've always said this and we believe this about like stakes have to be real. And if they're not real, like, you know, the, the, the audience's emotional investment in the, in the, in the moment, in those characters, in the narrative is only, uh, is contingent upon them feeling like there's potential, there's something to be lost. So we, you know, in all of our storytelling, even though those Marvel movies, a lot of the story was difficult, we wanted to commit very hard to that idea. Um, so to answer your question, I think like, it would be it would be within the context of that. It depends how he was brought back. It depends what the storytelling is. But I mean, it's certainly it's certainly something that has to be earned. It certainly has to be something that would surprise and shock audiences. That you can't simply just bring him back. Um, there, there would have to be a really compelling, innovative, uh, unpredictable narrative event to like to, to find your way there in order for it to be worth it. One of the things that I loved about Extraction was 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 that moment with David Harbour and Chris Hemsworth talking about getting old and just like I loved their conversations and I loved their fight scene um, with David Harbour, obviously being a major part of Black Widow. I was actually just genuinely curious from a director's standpoint with Endgame specifically. I know you were doing that movie to end that storyline. But because Black Widow is a prequel, I was curious if you had to add anything into your movies to Infinity War or even Endgame that would align with the story that's going to be told in Black Widow. And have you even seen Black Widow yet? Uh, We haven't seen Black Widow yet. uh, And we did not have to add anything to the storyline. I think they, you know, uh, they started work on that script after Endgame was completed. So they they then, uh, they worked, they, they retrofit according to what happened in Endgame. But I think it's fascinating. I think it's a very cool idea to tell a story uh, through a prequel. Uh, very, very, very rarely do you go backwards in a narrative. And that's an interesting concept. Um, guys, there were so many moments in, in honestly all of your Marvel films where it, it just felt like you you saw me playing with all my action figures as a kid and like imagining uh, all of these like incredible moments. And I'm curious, like obviously all they're all earned in the films, but I'm curious, was, were there any really cool, incredible, fun, unbelievable moments that you guys thought of and thought, Oh, that would be cool if we could do this, but then they just didn't end up finding their way into the story. Oh, wow. Oh man. I mean, there are thousands of moments. I mean, if we, if we collected all the storyboards and all the previs that we cut out of those four films, we can make two more movies out of them. So please do there. Yeah. There was a, there was an entire action set piece with, uh, with Black Widow and Hawkeye uh, um, that was cut out of Endgame uh, um, that uh, that was really cool. I love the uh, I love the boards for it. Um, uh, there's there's many of those sequences. I'm trying to think. Yeah, there was a whole Captain America Winter Soldier actually opened with a battle uh, uh, during World War II in one of the drafts. Um, that was a was a massive. A battle that ended with a, a significant moment for Cap, that then fed into um, uh, the story, and then we ended up cutting that uh, about two months before shooting. Uh, guys, I'm going to bring it back to ex- extraction also, and just know that um, when this interview posts uh, on the Real Blend podcast, it's going to be after the film is opened. 
So by then, hopefully a lot of people have checked it out. They'll have reached your ending shot, um, which I won't reveal here, but it's ambiguous. And I'm curious about the fact that, you know, knowing your guys' experience with uh, franchises and sequels, if this feels like the beginning of something you'd like to launch and continue to explore, uh, or if it was always meant to be a one-off story. Uh, it, we we wanted to create a character with enough emotional texture, and, and which is why we love the trauma uh, angle, um, the emotional trauma angle with him. We think it dimensionalizes him. So we feel like there are more stories that you could tell with him, Tyler as a character. And we think Hemsworth's performance is so uh, fantastic that we would certainly want to see him in more stories. Um, it's just, now it's just a function of, you know, is there the right story to tell with that character? So that last shot is intended to be poetic. Uh, you know, who's to say if we told a story, whether we would go backwards or forwards with it. Uh, is he really dead? Is this, uh, uh, the, you know, an emotional, uh, um, a moment for the boy? Is it, is it, is it just, a, is it just meant to convey a sense of hope, uh, that he had a guardian, guardian angel watching over him and now he's got, uh, he's got a chance at normalcy moving forward. So, um, you know, we, we like the poetry in that shot and it's, uh, it's ambiguity. Joe, I'll end on this. I think the bridge sequence, uh, in this movie is just insane i i i I was it reminded me of the intensity that i felt watching the bridge and highway sequence in winter soldier which is still my favorite uh scene ever in the mcu next to infinity wars ending and obviously endgame Uh, i was curious about writing that scene in regards to the difference in directing the bridge scene you did in winter soldier and then having the r rating here to be able to kind of play with that and could you imagine um your bridge scene from winter soldier having an R rating, like, how would you play with that? Yeah, I mean, there is a, you know, we like intensity. We like visceral action. Um, uh, this certainly, as I said, this movie is very heightened and hyper adrenalized, but, uh, um, I, you know, I thought Sam did an incredible job with the bridge sequence. The intention was, and, and you know, we, we relate as movie fans, we always re- relate back to moments in theaters that we had as well that inspired us. We've talked about Empire Strikes Back with our Marvel films. We've also talked about, uh, the bank heist and heat, um, for, um, uh, winter soldier. And that bank heist and heat for me was my favorite 10 minutes that I've ever had in a movie theater. I was, I, I, I've never felt so front row, uh, in, in an action sequence in, in my life. And so uh, visceral, uh, and connected to uh, what was happening on the screen and the way that it was shot and the performances. Um, and, and to a certain extent, we, we chase that feeling and we want to give that feeling back to audiences the way that we had it. So that bridge sequence is an homage to the bank heist and heat, that level of first person um, uh, intensity uh, that you feel hanging over the shoulder of these characters as they fight their way uh, 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 in a life and death fight to get across this bridge and save this boy. So, um, you know, and having the R rating certainly helps because it, it allows the viscera uh, uh, um, to heighten it. It allows it allows us not to pull our punches. I don't know that we would have changed much about that the bridge sequence in Winter Soldier. I don't know that an R rating necessarily would have helped it. Only in that the tone of that movie is so specific uh, that 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 bridge sequence works really well uh, as a complement to what's going on in the rest of the film uh, and the way it's executed. Well, Joe and Anthony, you talk about chasing a feeling, and I think I speak for all three of the podcast hosts here when I mentioned that uh, we've been chasing after an interview feeling that we had with you guys shortly after Endgame. I don't know if you remember, but Kevin and I did an interview with you guys at his station 
uh, where we got to talk yeah. about spoilers. And and that was so important to us as an interview. We were so thankful you guys gave us that time. And literally, we approach each interview now uh, with anyone that we're doing with to try to achieve that level of, of personal interaction and, and bringing good questions. And so we cannot uh, thank you enough for coming back around to the show. We're so happy to have you guys on to help promote extraction and uh, and come back anytime, please. We really you appreciate it. Awesome. You guys are, yeah, you guys are, yeah, you always have incredibly thoughtful questions and we love talking to you. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you guys. Talk soon. So we've had uh, two recurring guests on the show, uh, Quentin Tarantino and now uh, Joe and Anthony Russo. Uh, this is a great company to have. Uh, stay tuned to find out who will become our next uh, recurring guest here on Roveline. Thank you to Joe and Anthony, obviously, for joining us talk about extraction and their work in the Marvel universe. And they didn't do a ton of interviews for that. So that was really cool. They did our show. And like, you know, Sean mentions the thing we did with them in DC, you know, they were in my studio to do a television appearance and they stayed an extra 40 minutes just to talk to Sean and I, the Monday after Endgame became the highest opening <laughs> of all time. And the yeah. two people responsible for it are in our station. And Sean and I are just in this green room geeking out and they didn't have to do that because then I was going to see them later on that night for the Q&A. Obviously, Sean, you were there, too. And I just feel like these guys go the extra mile. Um, and if you notice a lot on their social media and their Twitter, they're 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 all about family. They're all about friends. Like, like they're very they have a very specific way they treat people. And I feel like a lot of people love working with them. And, mm-hmm. I, and, I, and I feel like they express the same respect to us that they do, I feel like, to their colleagues. And again, we're not on set and watching Avengers be filmed, but when I'm talking to Joe and Anthony, they make me feel like we're like we're hanging out. And because they're always they've always been so complimentary to our show. They've always really been nice to go with the extra distance. So I just want to say thank you to them and their publicists and their whole team because they do not have to do this mm. and they do. Um and they're awesome for it. So thank you to them. Appreciate it. I want to pitch a question to you guys. And and this goes off of um what Sean just mentioned. So obviously this is the second time that we've had a recurring guest on Real Blend. The first time being obviously Quentin Tarantino. If you guys could pick guest blend, the third person to come back and be the third recurring guest, who have we had that you would want to come back oh, on the show? Well, mine's easy. Mine's Kevin Feige. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah All right, we got we got Feige in. Uh, London as part of the uh, Spider-Man Far From Home junket. It's where you you keep mispronouncing the word I. Like, so you got Kevin Feige. Yes. Well, I wish you guys were able to come in with us, but it was technically a a one-on-one for Cinema Blend that they also let us Yeah, sure, we didn't want to be a part of it. It's okay. Into the, uh, but the best part about that too is that Jake said to me before we went in, and it never even crossed my mind because I was so worried about the questions. He was like, you're going to get a picture? And then I was like, oh, I got to get a picture. And then I was so focused on getting a picture. And of course he was Shit, incredibly nice and generous. No, 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 that was great. I'm glad you put that idea in my head. Cause I wouldn't have thought of it. And, um, and then I'm, and now I have it on, on uh, my wall in a frame. So I'm very happy about that. <laughs> Kev. Uh, I mean, I, I honestly, if I could have it, I would do a hour long interview with Alfonso Coron, just about the, uh, the driving sequence in children of men. Oh. I just want him. I just want him to, I just want him to walk me through that shot by shot, second by second about him, him and Emmanuel Lebeski, because we had him on for Roma. He was actually our first major, major guest. Yeah. Um, and that name uh, was able to give us some type of clout, I guess, in order to push for other guests. And yeah. Alfonso Coran, that's a big name in the film industry and for us, obviously. And he was 
wonderful to us. But so I would love to go back and talk to him about like Azkaban, which I think is the best Harry Potter. I would love to talk 100%. to him about, you know, uh, uh, Children of Men. I would love to talk to him about any, all of his work. I, would, I wish we could take a deeper dive with him outside of like a 10 minute window. That'd be awesome. Jake, Gabriel, you have one? Uh, I personally, it's honestly, maybe it's not like the sexiest answer, but it's the interview I think I would enjoy the most. I would love another hour with Barry Sonnenfeld oh. because <laughs> I feel like we just hit the tip of the iceberg and I got to literally, say, that, is, that isn't, yeah, yeah, that is, that is an interview that was so beyond what I thought and expected that it was going to be. And I just thought he was such an incredible storyteller. And at the end of the day, I love someone that can tell a good story, but tell a good story well. Yeah. And uh, oh, and man. I I just thought it was yeah. unbelievable. I I would I would have him back on this show in a heartbeat. All so right. good. <clears throat> Talking points. So um, the industry is figuring out what to do moving forward. And and each week when we come back to reconvene and talk about where we are in terms of the uh, the delays that have been happening with blockbusters and and new dates for new things, uh, all of it hinges on theaters opening back up and when people feel safe enough. Uh, to go back to the theater when they're going to be comfortable watching uh, movies. So we're bringing this up because Texas is the latest state after Georgia, uh, just south of me here in North Carolina, uh, decided they're going to open up uh, select businesses. And with those select businesses came um, movie theaters. And so Texas says as of uh, the Friday of this week that we're recording, they're going to open up their locations or allow locations to open. Now, Alamo Drafthouse has already come out and said that they're not going to open um, but even the ones that do are going to open at 25% capacity, um, which will allow people to spread out. Um, but but it runs into the issue that no one really knows what they're going to show. Uh, there's no new movies, so I guess they would have to dip into their uh, retro archives somehow and play old films. But Jake, you talked to somebody who just flat out admitted back home for you that they don't have anything to show. Yeah, I'm friends with a movie theater manager on Facebook who – it was the theater in Houston that I used to go to whenever they were screenings. It was mm-hmm. um, the, the, the big the – big, it, it, it had the one true IMAX in Houston, oh. um, the marquee. Um, and, uh, and he posted on Facebook today or yesterday saying, like, I got, I got nothing to show. Like, that, there are no new movies for me. Like, so I don't know what – like, what is the – point then like what's like what is it really worth like risking people even even at 25 percent capacity well is it worth it to show <laughs> the avengers here's my point or here's what i think the point might be it's gonna be awkward whenever things open right so you gotta start taking those first steps somehow um and for some places maybe it feels too soon i, I will tell you around here in north carolina our numbers aren't huge, and when you do go out, it's it's feeling with each passing week that we're inching further and further, or closer and closer to what it felt like before all of this, right? Like, stores aren't packed, and restaurants aren't open in any way, shape, or form, but the stores that are open have figured out ways to deal with customers that are coming, you know? They've got places in, uh, or systems in place to deal with distancing. They've got ways for you to pay. They've got ways for you to find certain things. And and that's beyond even supermarkets. So I think movie theaters are having to get to that point so that when new movies are available, uh, they'll be able to sort of go with as full cylinder as they can, uh, even if that's a couple of weeks away. So I guess I, I guess I can say I sort of understand why these these theaters are doing it because you someone's got to dip their toe in the water first, right? Like someone's got to be the first ones to say, "Here's how we're coming back from this." 
let's give it what, a shot. Isn't that the equivalent of like a restaurant saying, okay, we're going to open our doors. We have no food, but we're going to open our doors. <laughs> then yeah. it's sort of like, well, then what's the point? Like, I trust me. I, I mean, I, I, I get your point. You know, you, you, you kind of, you want to like, you know, uh, on a cold day, you want to crank the car and kind of like rev up the engine a little bit before you put it in the drive. I get sure. that. But like, you got to have gasoline to, 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 to get the car running. Like there, there's nothing like you, you have no product. So, so do you really think that people are going to get out of their homes to go see a movie that they could pay to see at home? I mean, I saw, I saw something on Twitter that said like, it's not, I mean, again, I don't know if this applies specifically to Texas, but it was about, it's not a, it's not a, uh, it's permission to do it, not saying you have to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, the feeders can open if they want to, they do not have to open. Right. Um, so I feel like in this particular case, I do think it's too early. Uh, to Sean's point, not to, or we're not going to get political, but I think we need to have more tests before we can start opening theaters and things like sure. that personally, because people could be asymptomatic and you have no idea if someone has it or doesn't have it. That's a whole nother ball game we can go down. But this particular situation right now is, you know, I feel like the 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 domino effect of opening theaters in a smaller wave should happen maybe sometime in June. Uh, I don't know where we're you know where we're at right now. Obviously, we're at the end of April. Um, if things are getting better and when they get better, we use May as a as a time for those stepping stones to come back. And then movie theaters can reopen maybe in June. I don't know what the time frame would be, but then they reopen with their retro stuff. I mean, we asked the Russos about whether or not they would want to have Endgame or Infinity War in theaters again. So we might see things like that. And I guarantee you MCU fans would go in theaters in droves to try and make sure... I I think they would. I think they would to make a statement. That's just me. Um, But I do feel like it's way too early right now. And I think the idea of these articles saying theaters are going to open in Texas... It's all about being having the permission to do it, not them saying you have to do this. So, you know, I, they have nothing to show. They have nothing to show. What's the point of opening? But I think it's way too soon to open anything like a movie theater right now. I don't care if it's 25% capacity. Give it another month. Let the numbers start declining in a steady enough way. Then you start to open up slowly. Like Jake said, when I was saying Tenet could come out on July 17th, his argument was, you know, well, they're not going to just open theaters that week and then everyone's going to go. To Jake's point, that's what we need to do. This, this slow rollout, like this slow. And if it, if it can work, if we open now, I worry that we're going to end up back in the way China uh, happened, right? Because didn't China open their theaters again mm-hmm. and then reclose their theaters? Mm-hmm. I think that I, right now, I think the most important thing is getting enough tests out there mm-hmm. so that we can know that when you walk into an environment that the people that you're sitting with do or do not have yeah. the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is just the logical way to do it. That's yeah. Sean, let me ask you, if they were to open movie theaters yes. in Charlotte yes. on Friday and show Infinity War and Endgame, yes. would you take your family to go see it? Oh, that's a wrinkle because I no. 100% would, I'd go myself. I don't know if I'd okay. go my family. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then you're coming home to your family afterward. So no, no, no but, but I'd sit that's there a with point. a mask and gloves. I would sit there with a mask and gloves. But there's no and point in going. You have it at home. No. Yeah, no, I know. Yes, I understand Let's try to make a point. You're trying to make a point. That's a different story. That's the point I was making, though. I'm saying that personally, and I'm sure you guys feel the same way, screenings are such an integral part of our weekly life that I am now at the point where I physically miss that. I miss it too. Yeah, I physically miss. I it. I miss driving to DC. I, I can't believe I never I would say that. I miss getting invited to screenings that I have no intention of going to. 
<laughs> I just I just find it interesting. Like to 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 Sean to Jake's question, I do think that if we're in the middle of June and then you pose that exact same question again. I think Sean's answer different would be conversation. Different. Yeah, different conversation. different conversation. Honestly, honestly, my answer would probably I mean, two months from now, I right, yeah. I hope my answer is different. I hope that we're at a place in this world where our answers are different. Well, yeah. it's also why I'm I, I'm still appreciative, and I know I'm not trying to go back down to the tenant argument, but I'm appreciative that WB has kept that movie on July 17th, just in case. I mean, we you know that to me is the best light at the end of the tunnel. What if we are back there? What mm-hmm. if we are there? I mean, like we and we could be. But if I don't think opening movie theaters and restaurants right now is a smart idea, I just don't. All right. I want to get to the two titles uh, that have announced that they're going to uh, streaming services. Although one of them, I think, was heading to its HBO Max anyway. And that's the Seth Rogen film, um, An American Pickle, which sounds like. <laughs> that's amazing. It sounds amazing. Is it a joke? Um, I mean, no, I think it's a it's a it's a real movie. <laughs> it's no, a, no, I'm saying. But like the he, he sits in a, a, a thing of pickles for a hundred years he becomes pickled yes like captain america style he gets he gets pickled (laughs) for a hundred years does he come out like a pickle i don't know he comes he just comes out and he's been preserved similar to captain america in the ice but why pickles i don't know well well, the term the term like to pickle something means that like it is preserved and like it is it is it is both it is both a noun and like a verb, like you, you can, you can pickle something. So is he a cucumber before he goes in, and a pickle when he comes out? Oh, for out? fuck's sake! I think you're you're thinking way too much, <laughs> way more than Seth Rogen put into this. I'm just kidding, <laughs> Kevin. This is a guy who made a a, a lewd sex comedy out of food. Let Animated me tell you right food. now, Sausage Party is an <laughs> underrated, hilarious comedy that does not get enough credit. It doesn't. No, it it's doesn't. very funny and it's very disturbing. Well, so American Pickle. Yes, it's so disturbing. <laughs> but in the best so way, disturbing. in the best way. Um, American Pickle was going to go to HBO Max regardless. But um, this week, uh, Judd Apatow and Pete Davidson announced that their comedy, which was going to South by Southwest in an unfinished print sort of way, uh, the King of Staten Island is now going to be coming to VOD. And so the question I pose to you guys is now that we've seen, so Universal has done this for Trolls, uh, they've done it for, and now they're doing it for King of Staten Island. So they um, are, I would say, almost brazenly uh, going against the NATO agreement and allowing films that were slated for theatrical release to go to VOD. Now, we saw numbers on Trolls uh, this past week also that it made $100 million dollars the headline, which Kevin is is right to be bent out of shape about, the headline was extremely misleading. Yes, that's $100 million that it wasn't earning by not opening, but it, it didn't come anywhere close to touching what the first Trolls made in its initial theatrical run. So the question is, is always going to be, or the answer is always going to be, the theatrical run is, is more successful. And also... The original Trolls had a video run as well. I saw that it made like $75 million yes. off of video and rentals and stuff like that, so, which Trolls 2 is never going to have. No. Like, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's already on VOD. It's not going to have another $75 million in video rentals. Trolls 2 will still get its like DVD Blu-ray release, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and then I think that factors into it. But you're, I mean, to Sean's point, Trolls 1, with the $70 million that that Jake's referring to, made way more than $100 million. Now, at the end of the day... You also have to factor in the other parts of it, how much went into the promotion for it, the junkets, the advertising. I mean, in this case, they probably saved a ton of money. I don't think they did a lot of press for it. I didn't see a junket happen for it. I saw maybe Timberlake go on 
Kimmel show. Um, it's an interesting thing, and, and we've gotten into this before, but I, I just find it to be fascinating because if we were in a situation right now where this was James Bond, we would be discussing numbers that are so astronomically higher than anything Trolls Worldwide World Tour would have done. It yeah. just happens to be the first one to technically do Could what you it did. If they put I mean, Bond if they on put, VOD? That movie would have made a billion in the first three weeks, probably just on VOD rentals. I mean, this 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 did a hundred million in three weeks. Yeah. I mean, and and so let's say theoretically, what would Bond do? Bonds open big. Bond, uh, don't they open like around sixty? He, almost like a Mission Impossible. I feel like they open around sixty. Do you sure. do you find that weird? And let me let me say something. This is actually interesting, and I've always been baffled by this. So Avengers Endgame, what was the opening domestic on that? Three hundred something million or whatever it was. Yeah. I think 60 million seems small for yeah. an, for a mission film. Like I've always wondered why those weren't larger openings. Like I feel like the I know they have legs and they eventually make a lot of money um worldwide, mm-hmm. but are you surprised they're not like larger? I feel like every time a Mission Impossible movie comes out, they have to reconvince the public of how good they are. Like every yeah. time one comes out, it's always got this massive word of mouth and we're all blown away by how good it is. And it opens at 60, but closes around 250. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and we all just are like, Oh my God, it was so good. And it becomes one of the big movies of the summer. And then like three or four years pass and people kind of just forget about the series again. And they have to almost start back over. And re- I, one of the things I will, I will stand by, I think that the mission impossible series is far more consistent, consistently good at a higher quality than the bond series. I think oh, I think Mission Impossible does this, and I think Bond does that. But I would argue now this is just a matter of number of films. I would argue that Bond has more films that you could argue, like in regards to a number of films that are better than just like Mission Impossible. I don't love the first one. Yeah. I know people love the Palmas movie. I'm not, I'm not a fan of it. Um, two, I don't mind. It's John Woo. It's whatever. Three, four, five are. Yeah, I think honestly, I think I love every single one of them. But uh, but no, you're right. I, but I, sixty million, it, it seems is, low, right? It seems a little well, low. I, I think a lot of people are down on Cruise. Like enough people still think he's the guy that jumped of, on the couch. Yeah, the kind of crazy guy. So that the mainstream, the Fast and Furious crowd, you know, is content okay. to go to those movies. But and it's also, I think, the Mission movies, very similar to what like when Jack Reacher came out. They're just, they're smarter. So like, like they're a little bit smarter than what the blockbuster audience uh, wants kind of thing, what, right? You have what, to work with them. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on like something like Top Gun? Okay. So let's say Top Gun opened in, at the end of June, like it was supposed to. I think to. Top Gun's going to open big because I feel like the, just the What's name big? Top Gun. 100 million? I, I, 90, uh, 80, I would have, 90? I would have said 70, I would have said 70, 80. Do you know what Top Gun's going to have um, is a strong female audience. Fe- yeah. The female audience l- loves that first movie. Yeah, loves yeah, true. that right. first yeah. movie. But it, it, it actually hits both audiences perfectly. Yep. It'll hit like both you're saying. Exactly. But it's interesting though. But um, but back to this this VOD thing. Uh, I think mm-hmm. I read an article the other day about this. I thought this was actually really interesting. Like the idea of the movie theater structure is going to change forever. I mean, it, it's clearly going to come down to a, a point. They think or whoever, whoever whatever article I was reading, they say that these mid budget films a film like King of Staten Island or something like that. Mm-hmm. Those are probably going to find their ways to VOD a lot more often than, than we think. Yeah. It's the tent poles and the big blockbusters. I mean, think about what movies are driving our box office, star Wars, MCU bond, uh, you know, whatever franchise, Harry Potter. Yeah. Uh, Fast and Hunger Furious. games, fast and furious. Yeah. 
if you, and if you look at every movie that was moved and not touched on VOD, those were all tent poles. Wonder Woman, Black Widow, Mulan. I mean, Mulan's not, is Mulan a tent pole? I guess it would. Oh be yeah, hundred percent. I think yeah, so. it's two hundred million dollar so. film. Yeah. So I do find it interesting. Like, so let me ask you guys this: Would you be okay living in a world where? a lot more of these mid-sized films. Now that would come down to films probably like, you know, like I said, like, like I think King of Staten Island is a good example of this 50, 60, $70 million budget films, not the $200 million ones going to VOD. Would you be okay with that? I, I mean, the reason why I'm okay with that is because one of the biggest critiques I give against a film when I watch it, um, is does this have to be on the big screen? Does this actually, does this story have to play out? On the big screen. And we're going to get to one as we get to the end of the episode or, or later into the episode. Hugh Jackman's Bad Education, right? It's got Hugh Jackman. It's got Alice and Janney. Um, it played at the Toronto Film Festival. It ended up going to HBO. Um, it's a better at home movie. Super compelling story. But I haven't seen it. I don't think that I would have had to go to a theater to see it. But it, there's something about the mentality of yeah. a theater. Like, for example, Staten Island uh, is probably going to be very funny. Uh, I'm a big Judd yeah. Apatow fan. Yeah. Uh, he shoots on film. I'm, I've, I've, I've loved watching Knocked Up and loved watching funny people in theaters. Comedy in theaters is funny to me. Yeah. Well, see, uh, I think that's the point. Is I, that's what yeah. sort of sucks is that like you talk about right. the mid range films being the one to go to VOD. That that's what sort of means comedy. And, right. and comedies, there's like sometimes I kick my. There have been a lot of movies that I've watched that I missed like at a screening or I missed on opening weekend, and I've watched them a few weeks later and thought like God, like this was funny. But it would have been so much better if I'd watched it in a theater with a packed audience. Like that would have mm-hmm. been like I missed out on that. And unfortunately, like like you're gonna, I feel like you're gonna lose uh, the 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 comedy in a theater uh, experience. I'm gonna find you guys this quote. Um, keep keep going, but about about the universal VOD thing. But it almost uh, makes me wonder. And I'm gonna transition into our next topic uh, while Kevin's looking that up. If you'll start to see directors uh, look for alternate routes to get their movies in front of people. The script I wanted to bring up just really quickly to mention that uh, because he's in quarantine, he was able to finish it. Kevin Smith finishes uh, The Twilight of the Mall Rats. And uh, so that's going to be his next film, I would assume, because now he has this uh, script in place. He says that Brody's going to be the main character coming back. So we assume more Jason Lee. Obviously, we've been raving about Jason Lee on this thing. But Kevin, you talked about the fact that you went and saw um, the reboot, Jay and Silent Bob reboot, because he took it around on the um, road show. And he plays it in front of people who, like, that's the audience for it, right? Like, it right. was a better experience in a packed theater of Kevin Smith fans than if you yeah. just went to go see it on an AMC on a regular Thursday night, say. Well, that's kind of the beauty of what Kevin does, right? Like, if you have the ability to pack a non-movie theater chain house and you can get everybody in there who loves your work that night watching your material, it those are the greatest theatrical experiences I've ever been to. Like, sitting in a crowd where you know every single person's a fan. Yeah. And genuinely just laugh. Because everybody's in on the joke, there's nobody like in the midsection who's not in on the joke. Yeah. Everyone gets it. Uh, I did find that quote, by the way. Um, this is actually, this is kind of scary. All right, this is from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and this is NBC Universal CEO Jeff Shell. He said, the results for Trolls World Tour have exceeded our expectations and demonstrated the viability of PVOD. As soon mm. as theaters reopen, we expect to release movies on both formats. Ooh. I mean, that's a pretty... Do you think directors will start readjusting their contracts to come in and go like, all right, if I'm going to make a movie for you, it's going to theaters or I'm not going to like, like they're like, they'll want a clause in their contract saying, I want this to be 
a like I think that like the the theater like a, a director that has the ability to throw around weight, and I would say Apatow might be one of those guys. Well, could put I, in his contract like I want you to guarantee this goes to theaters. Okay, look here's a perfect mid budget movie um, that would be caught up in this. Spielberg's The Post. Spielberg yeah. will always go to theaters. Yes. I, I think he'll always fight to go to theaters. Yeah, and I, I think so, he could be one yeah. of those guys that, like... But, but look at... Do you have the option? Like, Scorsese yeah. had to go to Netflix. You know, like, that's, that's he, But the he discussion. had to go to Netflix to get the money. Right. Because they were the only... That, that, was, that was different. I, I don't want to use the expression sold out, but, like, he, he, he gave up the theatrical experience because he wanted $200 million. Well, I that, think... That was, I, on but, his, that was on his end. But I think... I, I think Kevin sorry, may ahead, know Sean. this a little bit more, too. Um... I think directors would shoot something differently if they didn't think it was going to theaters. Well, I mean, like, it's interesting. Oh, like, like, you're going to start shooting for TV? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, like, movies that are shot for Netflix, like Extraction, it's shot just like a feature film is shot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, yeah there's yeah. no difference. The only difference, meaning, is that, like, someone like Nolan, who does shoot different formats actively, um, you would want those formats to actively change while you watch them. So, for example, when you watch Dark Knight or Interstellar or Dunkirk at home, you do watch it from the theatrical aspect ratio as he shifts. But to be honest, it, it, it's one of those things where do you guys remember like uh, Sean, you and I were at that Roma thing with um, the uh, with Alfonso Cuaron and the, and the yeah. star of the, of the movie. Mm-hmm. And that was like a pretty revealing day for me as a as a film fan, because it was the first time we've discussed this in the show before. Where I truly realized I was like, not everybody has the ability to get to a movie theater. You know, Yalitza, the actress from Roma, is telling this great story about living three hours away from a movie theater, not being able to get to them, and Netflix mm-hmm. being that thing that can deliver in their homes, they can watch movies together, the families. So that really opened my eyes to this idea of being able to listen, we can coexist. You know, movies can coexist theatrically, and movies can coexist on, on VOD. The scarier thing that scares me the most is whether or not this precedent will then start taking over these mid-budget films that we want to see in theaters. You know, I mean, like, there, there are going to be times where a film comes out that we all want to see. Baby Driver. That's a mid-budget movie. Wow, yeah. Sure. No, and that, and that would have been, you know, I don't know what, I guess we're considering mid-budget. I don't know if we're having a range here, but I, I wouldn't consider Baby Driver to be a massive budget. It was a relative, it was a smaller budget. I think it was less mm-hmm. than 40 million, I think. Um, so what, where does the standard get set? How much does your movie have to cost to be put in theaters? Over a hundred? You know, does it have to be Chris Nolan? Does it? Ha- does Tarantino have that route? I mean, what's it? What's it called? Uh, Hollywood costs ninety million. So Should I don't we go really back know- to even having bankable stars. You know, well, the stars are not. I don't think. I don't think people go to the movies for stars anymore. I mean, I, I feel like right. DiCaprio. You know, I think Sandra Bullock still uh, uh, brings people. Denzel. In. Denzel. Um, to a certain extent. Because when I, when I used to work in the movie theater when I was in high school, people would walk up to me and say, can I have two tickets to the new Denzel movie? They wouldn't even say the title because they were it's it's, they just go for the actor. Um, yeah. But we are in franchise territory. The key yep. here is Tom Cruise. Look at his openings. What do well and what doesn't do well. Edge of Tomorrow, American, what was the, um, that movie Made. called? I remember that American movie. Made. American Made. Which I think did eh. like 40. Right. Then you got Mission. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure Top Gun will do well. Is that because of Cruise or is it because of the franchise? It's the franchise. Uh-huh. All I right. Think. Well, as we talk about how we're going to get a chance to see all of these things coming forward, at least uh, a, a slew of, of global film festivals are going to get together for something that we want to bring your attention to. That's going to be on YouTube and it's called We Are One, a global film festival. And there are 20 partners that are participating in this, including people behind uh, the Sundance Film Festival, the Cannes Film Festival, uh, TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, Tribeca, and Venice. It is going to be an online film festival. 
that it says is set to run from May 29th to June 7th, and it's going to be available at youtube.com backslash we are one. Now, it's going to be free to watch, uh, but they're going to have the ability for you to donate to charity. Um, but what isn't made clear uh, in the Variety article is what films are going to be made available. Um, I know the submission process for places like Cannes uh, and Sundance. Well, Sundance played, so I guess they could uh, run a lot of their programming in this if they wanted to. Can didn't actually go through a submission process, and we're not at the point where TIFF or um, Venice are at the point where they can submit films. So I'll be curious if they go back into their archives uh, to show films that did play at those film festivals over time. Hopefully they uh, will bring us some awareness to uh, short film makers. They're going to have documentaries, uh, music and comedy. There are going to be some panel discussions to make people feel like they're at a film festival. Um, But if you're plugged into the circuit of paying attention to these films that go to these global film festivals, then I think that this will be um, away from May 29th to June 7th to just get your fix uh, and tune in and try to see what type of things that they're promoting uh, through this initiative. So uh, we'll make sure to put that on um, on our social channels and remind people as we get closer to it. But uh, YouTube announced we are one, uh, the global film festival coming uh, May 29th. So I want to get to this week in streaming, start with two titles uh, that we haven't seen yet, but that we want to put on your radars. First one is called all day and a night, which is coming to Netflix on May 1st. Uh, it stars Jeffrey Wright, who I am uh, enamored with because of his work in Westworld right now. Jake, I know you're off Westworld, but uh, you got to hop I'm just, I'm, I'm behind and disinterested, and that's a dangerous combination. That is a very dangerous combination. But All Day and a Night is also coming from the writer of Black Panther. Uh, so you can check that out starting May 1st. Also on May 1st, Ryan Murphy has a limited series coming to Netflix called Hollywood. Uh, so you can check that out if you wanted to see what that's all about. But then on May 4th, May the 4th, which has become an unofficial Star Wars uh, holiday, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker is going to be coming to Disney+. Plus. Um, I'll defer to our resident Star Wars fan wearing his Star Trek t-shirt. Uh, Jakey, have you checked it out since it's been on home video? Do you have a DVD copy of it? Uh, I bought it uh, when it came out digitally. Because remember, it was, it was one of the first movies, whenever all this started happening, that they bumped up early and made it available to people. So I bought it digitally. And did you watch it? Ken? I did. And it's good. It still holds up. Yeah. 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 You don't sound yeah. as enthusiastic, though. No, it's good. I just don't want to. I just don't want to get into it again. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, I see uh, I see Gabe and, and the little the little square that no one else can see. And I just I, I know that I can see the fire and I got my little stick and I choose not to poke it. Well, I have a DVD like copy of it. I haven't watched it. Um, but I will probably fire it. It's, oh, that, it is. that I, yeah, I love that, that, that you got, that you got the free DVD copy of it. That, that's, that's, cause easy. that makes sense. For that's, some reason, I don't understand. Like, so this is what happens almost every night at the O'Connell house. Um, we retire to the couch. Michelle and I will choose something to watch and we'll watch it together. And over the course of watching it together, she'll all sleep. And then once she's fallen asleep, I can switch over to whatever I'm, I would prefer to watch. Usually it's like a pardon the interruption or some type of sports show. There's right. no sports on right now. Um, so I find I go to Disney Plus and I'll throw on a Marvel movie. Uh, I'm starting to watch Rogue One again. Just for and just, just to clarify, you, you are not caught up on The Last Dance. You'll you'll watch. No, I watched episodes three and four with Brendan. Okay. All right. All right. Cool. Yeah, yeah, all right, all right, all right. But I'll tell you what I didn't need from The Last Dance. I didn't need to be like, Dennis Rodman was so important to the team. Let's go back to his earliest days and trace his entire journey through it. Oh, was. I thought that was amazing. I know Gabe told us not to get into this, but I'm just going to say this real fast. <laughs> We're going to do it. My there favorite moment, my favorite expression on the show is, I'm I, know Gabe, I know Gabe said not to get into it. This is not my fault. But 
you I did guys went this down up. this path. Um, there was a moment in episode three, I think it was, where Rodman was explaining the science of how he rebounds and the clicks of the ball oh, hitting cool. the basket. Yes. That blew my that, mind. Did, I was, that, like, that's I was memed now. Like, people take that clip and, and there's, there's a... And they're using it for all kinds. It's like uh, trying to explain uh, what order to watch the MCU to people. And they take that clip and it's like Rodman like explaining different things. And oh, that's funny. Funny. I, very fun. That's I am truly astounded by the storytelling of this show. Yeah, I am I'm not a sports person. I am so in on this. I, I haven't been this passionate about like something I've watched in a long time because I'm just so the score. Oh, and they used a great Beastie Boys track this week called The Maestro off Check Your Head, uh, which was just awesome. I mean, the director is just hitting every note perfectly. The Lakers, I can't, oh my God, MJ crying over the trophy. And they said he never cries. He never shows emotion. Oh my God. Amazing. I'm glad you mentioned the Beastie Boys. So get into the Beastie Boys story, the Spike Jones yeah. movie, because I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but you checked it out. It's worth seeing. Yeah, it. it's one of the best movies I've seen this year, hands down. Nice. Um, it is it is such an emotional, beautiful tribute to Adam Yauch, MCA, uh, one of the greatest musicians ever, in my opinion. Also, one of the most important people just in the music industry. He did so much outside of the music industry. Um, for people who aren't aware, Spike Jones, he directed this doc. It's a documentary. It's, it's a live documentary. You want to call it that. They did it at the King's Theater in Brooklyn. And Spike actually directed their Sabotage video years and years ago, which is mm-hmm. iconic. And it's one of the greatest videos ever. And so they've kept Spike along for a long time. And so Ad-Rock and Mike D, they come out and they basically tell the Beastie Boys story for two hours. And it is incredible because like the last dance if you don't like beastie boys you're not a fan of, of hip-hop as you're watching it the history and every song they're talking about you know you know fight for your right you know sabotage i mean these are all songs that you know mm-hmm. but the stories behind these songs are incredibly fascinating also what i found interesting about the documentary was how many times these guys almost didn't keep going. Um, you know, I just always find those stories interesting. Fight for Your Right came out. They were kind of slated as the frat boy rappers, right? Uh, and they didn't want to be that anymore. So they tried to go a little more serious with Paul's Boutique, and they kind of went on, licensed to, I mean, all the albums they did. But the documentary does a great job of paying an emotional tribute to MCA by also making you appreciate the musicianship. These guys are amazing musicians like they are like i don't know if you guys know the sabotage lineup on who plays what but you know mca's playing bass mike mm-hmm. d's on drums and ad rock's playing guitar and rapping and singing and screaming and then these guys are considered hip-hop artists but they have such a range um and i don't think i ever really appreciated the beastie boys as much as i did before watching this doc and my, my buddy josh it's his favorite group of all time I, I got a chance to catch up with him this weekend and just kind of go through the doc with him and it was really special because I just learned so much. I didn't know Beastie meant was an acronym. Um, I can't. It's boys entering uh, something. I can't remember the full no acronym. I didn't know. That. I did not. Yeah, I've it's, never it's heard boys that. entering. Oh, I can't remember now off the top of my head. It's a long, okay. it's, but I never knew it. But it's funny huh. because it has the word boys in it, and they already have the word boys at the end of their of their name, so it yeah. made no sense. Um, but Beastie does is an acronym, uh, which is very funny. Um, but the doc is great. If you're into um, just great storytelling, you'll love it. I also love that they kept the mess-ups in there. This was a live show. So, like, there's a bit... There's, like, bits in the show that are really kind of become domino jokes throughout the thing. Like, Spike Jones will miss a cue with a video on the screen, and they'll call Spike out during the doc, and then he kept all that in there, which is really cool. Um, and then I went down a big rabbit hole. I watched their entire 30-minute interview on Fast. Alan, 
Um, oh, I, I'm just obsessed with them now. I, I'm, I'm like really into it. Turn me into a bigger fan. Um, even I was a casual fan, but I'm telling you right now, anybody out there watch listening to our show right now, if you're not a sports fan, if you're not a music fan or a hip hop fan or a Beastie Boys fan, there's nothing better than good storytelling about things yeah. you might not know. Yeah. And the Beastie Boys story is, oh, it is pound for pound. just one of the best documentaries I've seen in a long time. It's incredible. So Beastie stands for uh, Boys Entering boys. Anarchistic States Towards Inner Excellence. <laughs> right. Which I never, ever knew. Never. <laughs> no clue Dude, who that was. I, no idea. I thought that I, I thought that was like a new discovery. And I called my friend Josh and he goes, Yeah, it's old news. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I had no I had absolutely no idea. So um, but uh, we should yeah, come up with an it. acronym for what real blend means. Oh, you guys want to know it's yeah, we should, we should. Like, like, really oh, excited, know. energetic losers. Wait, let the let's let the blunders come Blending. up with it. Yeah. By the oh, way, no. you know, add yeah, we should. <laughs> yeah, if you guys want to come up with the, what the acronym for real blend stands for, please. Also, oh, a little funny no. side note: when you watch the BC Boys story documentary, Ad Rock went to LA and started acting for a while, um, in between some of the records. So the they cut to these like really horrible clips of him in movies, and it's so funny. I mean, do you guys do you guys know Ad Rock's personality? Like, you know, he's oh like, Kevin. So in eighth grade, License to Ill came out. That, yeah. I was in eighth grade when that when that came out. Classic. And I was so obsessed with Ad Rock because he just we, seemed yeah. like the sarcastic member. He's of my the favorite bands. one. He's yeah, my yeah. favorite one, and yeah. he rocked a Mets hat. And here I am, a kid from Long Island, and this is the rapper in this suddenly overnight huge band yeah. rocking a Mets hat. He wore it everywhere he went. So He's for our eighth grade talent show, we <laughs> lip synced to Paul Revere, um, oh. and our teacher shut it down in the middle of it because she thought it was offensive. <laughs> We were in the middle of the lip sync. And you did I would give a large sum of money to see some kind of video of yeah, that. Yeah, no, I don't, there wasn't video back then. It didn't exist. What, did what you find, do it in the Civil War? Like, maybe there wasn't video back then. What I find funny now, though, uh, uh, Sean, is like, I always felt like Ad-Rock was like the energetic, like the, the funny over the top. He is so, yeah. he's become like Mr. Grouch now. Like, oh, in a funny really? way. That's oh, funny. dude, he, he's like, he's just not like the Ad-Rock like, it's funny watching, like, older videos from them. But I'll tell you right now, the thing hits you right in the gut, man. Okay. Like, the tribute to MCA is beautiful. All right. Beautiful. Um, so I was going to watch Beastie Boys Story, but then I knew Kevin had seen it. So instead, I watched Bad Education, uh, which is a film that also went to the Toronto International Film Festival. I think I said that earlier. Um, and stars Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney. And I was fascinated from this um, from this perspective. It's a Long Island story, and I'm a Long Island native. But it took place uh, after the fact. It's based on a true story. Took place after the fact, long after I had moved out of there. Took place in 2002. Um, but it's uh, a, a really compelling story, a really interesting story. I don't understand. They marketed this as a dark comedy. Uh, Gabe, did you laugh? Did you find it funny? Because I know Gabe watched around the same time. Yeah, he's shrugging in a no, not necessarily. Um, it wasn't funny to me at all. And it could have, I guess they could have approached it in a Cohen Brothers type way and lampooned these characters because they can be a little bit over the top but it's essentially an embezzlement story where these uh, school leaders ended up taking millions of dollars um, from the Roslyn public school systems because they just lied about receipts like they just would charge a million things to the um, credit cards of the public school system and then not um, turn in their receipts and delete them off of uh, 
the uh, paperwork and it never got caught for several years. And then when they were outed, when they were discovered by the school board, the school board didn't want to report them because they didn't want to jeopardize the school's standing in terms of it was it's it reminded me a little bit of the Lori Laughlin uh, Felicity Huffman deal. They oh, don't want to jeopardize the school's standing um, as being able to put kids into really good colleges because they said, oh, if if we get exposed by this, it's going to the stain of it's going to be on the kids. And the funny thing is the way that it surfaced is a little bit because a girl in the, in the uh, student newspaper went to the principal to interview him about or the school superintendent to interview him about a skywalk that they're going to build at the um, thing. And he asks for like a, just a, uh, she asks for a generic quote uh, from Hugh Jackman. She's like, it's just a puff piece. Just give me a quote about the skywalk. And he goes, no, 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 no. Hey, wait a second. He's like this inspirational superintendent teacher. He goes, listen, it's, it's only a puff piece if you make it a puff piece. Like, you know, you, you approach every story uh, and make it uh, make it more important. Like people are going to read you and it's only compelling if you make it compelling. So as she looked through all of this paperwork and dug through the archives, it started to expose how much these people oh, had been lying. Tonight. So, oh, wow. yeah, it was a really good story. Um, but the way that it sort of factors into what we were saying, I, I wouldn't have needed to see it on the big screen and it was weird when it came out of toronto that no studio picked it up uh and then it ended up going to hbo like you learned that hbo was going to run it because it feels like it would have been like a fox searchlight or a focus you know one of those studios would have picked it up and run with it it's not quite an a24 type of thing it's so it speaks a little bit to what we've been saying earlier is that it's getting harder and harder for movies like this to find a home uh a at a distribution center uh, and be like, it, it, if it went to Netflix or Amazon, I wouldn't have been totally surprised. Um, Would it have uh, been an Oscar contender last year? Man, I don't know. Um, Jackman's really good in it. Uh, no, not with last year's slate. No, not with the best actors that were available not, last year. What about Janie? No, I don't think have, so. Have we haven't so. done Hugh Jackman blend, have we? We have not. No, but that would oh. be a good one at some point. Oof. Yes. Um, and then Jake, I know you finished uh, Better Call Saul. I did. So while yes. all of you were watching all these things that that you really wanted to watch, and you were just kind of going on willy nilly, I was completing my end of a bargain that we started <laughs> on this show. Oh come on! Our bargain was Human Centipede three. So no, Kevin and I will no, always win. No, 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 sir. <laughs> Kevin and I your, will always your, win this. Your bet that yes. you lost was Human Centipede. <laughs> there is a difference. Yeah. Kevin right. and I traded. We Fair made enough. a bargain. I watched all 50 episodes of Better Call Saul. I yes. am completely caught up on Better Call Saul. And now I'm like a normie. And and the fifth season ended <laughs> on this great cliffhanger. Yeah. And I got to wait like the rest of you. Like I'm a so, year. I'm so, yeah, I'm so, if not more so. Yeah. I'm so used to hitting the end of an, uh, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm the very thing that I always criticize people who watch lost uh i'm, I'm very like because one of the things i always said is that, that the x factor one of the that made watching lost so great live on air was waiting when mm. when certain things would happen knowing you know um right now i'm watching uh uh breaking bad with with amanda and there was a moment and i'm not going to say exactly what happens but do you remember that scene in breaking bad where hank's looking at a book and then he looks yeah. up and it cuts w- to black w. yes yeah you got me. So it's yes. the uh, it's the cliffhanger of season five. Yes. Isn't it? Of the so and, and on Netflix, they put all of season five together. Yeah. It's just, and so she like she was like, oh my god, like like press play on the next one, and I go, I want you to imagine that happens, and you have to wait a year. Yeah. I was yeah. like, Is because that that's what it was. What, it was a yeah. year. I was like, that's what the rest of us had to do. 
So mm. now that's what I'm feeling. Anyway, I will have to say. You're making her way to Very here? quickly. No, she's already moved on. No, uh, <laughs> the, the next episode we were going to watch last time, we didn't get a chance. Uh, the next episode we're going to watch is Ozymandias. Oh, nice. Because she's oh, ready you're to watching sh- them out of order? No, 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 no. She, we've watched more since. Okay. Like, we've, like we watched the, 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 you got me, WW. And mm-hmm. she watched a few more. But now the next one, and I'm not letting her watch it because I want to watch it with her, is Ozymandias. Um, that being said, uh, I, I was very skeptical about, about Better Call Saul going into it. And even like through the second season, I was sort of like, okay, this is good. Like I'm enjoying it. It's, a, it's an easy watch. It's easy. It's you know, breezy. You know? It's not Breaking Bad. By season three, Breaking Bad kind of starts seeping into it. And it kinda, you kind of start getting a little bit of like, okay, I see, like, I see how this is becoming a Breaking Bad prequel. Mm-hmm. By season five, it's the first time where I will truly agree with you guys and go, especially maybe like the last three episodes. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's as good as Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Like they're like the the walking through the desert. Like we're not giving too much away, but like it Lalo is. Lalo is, is one of the most terrifying characters. And you know what's so seen. funny is that like and I don't want to so, get into it because it means nothing if you haven't seen the show. But the character of Lalo, like I, I remember thinking, like whenever he was introduced, I was like, oh, who is this guy? Like he was he going to be on the show for like three episodes and like come yeah. on, like and then they just kept evolving him. I will say. I doubted you guys for four and a half seasons, <laughs> but by the end of season five, I will say it's if it can keep that quality, it will have at least in the tail end. It's pretty incredible. caught up with Breaking well, Bad. To Jake's point, which is interesting, is I feel like Better Call Saul has given me a second chance at Breaking Bad, and I say that mm-hmm. because I binged Breaking Bad uh, right after it ended, and now I get to experience that wait time in between. Because I, I I think Saul since the season three has been Breaking Bad level, just personally. Um, so these seasons and these breaks have made me feel like what it was to watch Breaking yeah. Bad. Now again. I didn't. Breaking Bad's my favorite show of all time. There's nothing that will ever compare to it. But Saul is giving me that fix. You but know, doesn't I it make fe- you look at the show differently? Like we when we watched Saul? Uh, the other day, yeah, Saul makes you look at Breaking Bad differently. Like when yeah. when I mean, can I talk Breaking Bad spoilers? I mean, the show's been out. Dude, it's fine. Been out. Yeah. I think so yeah, when sure. when Mike is dying on yeah. the side of the river, like that was already kind of like a oh my god moment in Breaking Bad. Oh yeah. yeah. But when you put it into the context of all of like that dude was a yeah. grandfather. Yeah. When you think about everything that he went through with his son, with his granddaughter, like Saul is a great show on its own, but Saul makes Breaking Bad better. Like whenever oh, I yeah. look at whenever I look at Saul in in Breaking Bad, it's like it's so sad because it's just like obviously we don't know exactly we're not we're not a hundred percent there, but like I just want to go like, dude, what happened to you, man? Well, like how did you argue, get here? I argue that it, everything we see of Saul in break in Breaking Bad, he's a hundred percent Saul. Yeah. But right up until the very end of this current season, uh, Jake and I watched the finale uh, at the same time. We waited and queued it up on Sunday. And I kept texting to Jake, like, he's still Jimmy. He's still you Jimmy. Know, like, and the Jimmy McGill character is so compelling to me. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't see it at all in Breaking Bad. Yeah. You don't see it at all in Breaking Bad. I just speaks I to a... Gilligan. Like, Villigan, James Gilligan and uh, Vince Gilligan. And then there's one other creator, Peter Keogh, I think it is. Um, they have created these characters that, okay, so for Breaking Bad, it's like, Walter and Jesse. And for Saul, it's it's um obviously Jimmy, uh, who's played by God, uh why am I blanking on Bob Odenkirk. Um, Bob Odenkirk, thank you very much. But in Breaking Bad, you also came to care about um Skylar and Hank and Marie and then Gus and Mike and and 
it became so much more about the well-rounded, you know, ensemble. And I needed Better Call Saul to sort of get to that point. Because when it started in those initial first few episodes, and especially the first season, it was like, well, we have Mike and we have uh, Jimmy and we're going to figure out how to make them work. Right. But now Howard is just as interesting to me. Kim, yeah. obviously, yeah. Kim has become one of the most compelling Kim is, characters. Kim is what worries me because she's not in the picture in Breaking Bad. We've That's got one season left. Yeah. Peter That's Gould. the question you, that I've been trying to figure out for the past three seasons. Yeah. Like where I, I, I don't remember ever hearing her name. I'll tell you right now that I had a moment the other night when I was watching episode. I think it was the finale um, where I had chills go up and down my arm. My, my favorite three episodes of Breaking Bad ever are, is an episode called Salute, um, Crawl Space and then Face Off. Mm. Salute is the episode. Not Ozymandias? I love Ozzy Mendez. It's just, it's just too hard to watch. I, I can't watch Hank yeah. die. I, just, I can't rewatch that. It's hard to watch. It's rough. Um, like watching Gus Fring die is awesome yeah. <laughs> because he's a terrible person. Um, but one thing I find interesting about uh, Salud, if you remember Salud, Salud is the episode in Breaking Bad where Don Eladio uh, is given the poison of the drink, falls oh, yeah. into the pool. Yeah. Yeah. Gus yeah, yeah. Go, remember, Gus goes into the bathroom, throws up, and the beauty of him throwing up, he like, takes his jacket and yeah. he folds it beautifully. Well, in the, and in then, the same way, when his face was blown off, he still incredible, checked his time. Right? So on this Saul episode, they show the same pool. Don Eladio's pool. Point. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and Don Eladio coming back that actor is so damn good at that role. Yeah, like yeah, he is yeah. perfect. And he, you know what, you know what's beauty, beautiful about it? He picked it right back up. Yeah. It was as if it went nowhere. He, Don Eladio was not a huge character of Breaking Bad. He was a, he was a, um, a center focus character that we'd heard about, but man, that was amazing. I just, I love, it just feels like it was always meant to be this way. It doesn't feel like a cash grab. Feels like it's meant to be. I love it so much. All right, let's get to this week's blend game. Uh, we played hashtag theater experience blend. Now, part of this was tied to uh, the shirt that we're raising for the uh, Will Rogers Foundation. And again, a reminder to go find the link in our description here. Pick up one of those uh, limited edition T-shirts and all of the proceeds are going to the Will Rogers Foundation that is benefiting uh, movie theater employees who are struggling through this difficult time. But also, I put a challenge to the boys to come back with... Um, personal stories that we haven't shared on the show yet before, or just we're talking about our, our favorite experiences that took place uh, in a movie theater, which, which means in a crowd uh, experience something for the very first time, or, or just connecting with some type of material. I'm going to turn it over to Kevin McCarthy first, because as much as we all love going to the movie theaters uh, and celebrating seeing a new movie, I think Kevin probably wins the title of a, uh, the largest proponent of the movie theater experience here um, on the Real Blend podcast, and I want to hear what Kevin chooses. I've been so looking forward to this. I'm so excited about this. Well, we're all big into it, and I am too. The, uh, my only issue is my number one theatrical experience is the story that I've told in pieces in the show mm -hmm. before, like a year ago. So I don't know if we want to dive back into the, my Avengers Endgame experience. That well, was that was. Here's the here's the thing. Down. Like, I, Endgame to me. Because it's my number one movie of all time, Put it's, that aside. it's primarily because of the experience of seeing it in the theater. So I think that's yeah. an understood. And it's okay. one that a lot of, of fans also submitted. Like readers said that Avengers Endgame was one of the... Because, uh, truly, to me, I don't know if anything is going to be able to come close to or top that just because of the momentum that it built over the course of 20-some-odd yeah. films to get to well, that also, point. And they yeah. stuck to landing, so... Yeah, and that night was just insane. But I, I, I've told that story oh, for before, so but, many reasons with Kevin yeah, Smith and everything. That was a different. That oh. was a different. All right, I'm gonna go. Uh, then I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat, and I'm gonna give you a half of one because this one took place outside of a theater, okay. and then I'm gonna give you a, a, my actual theater experience. Okay. The only reason I'm mentioning this one because I don't remember the actual 
in theater experience. I just remember the out of theater experience. I worked at an AMC and I was never able to see R-rated movies because I was 16. I've told parts of this before. Um, but they used to write me up for sneaking into like Shadow of the Vampire randomly once. I remember I got written up for it on the thing. It said Shadow of the Vampire. Kevin sneaks in. Uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> I was so random. So the day I turned 17 was the day Blade 2 hit theaters. Okay. And I loved Blade 1. Blade 1 was one of my favorite action movies ever. So to walk up to that box office and look at those bosses in the face who'd written me up and wouldn't let me buy a 16-year-old, like a, a ticket to an R-rated movie, and to say one to Blade 2 was like one of the greatest feelings of my entire <laughs> life. And then it. just to walk in there, have the guy tear my ticket, not have to worry about sneaking into a different hallway, finding out what theater the movie's playing in so I can jump down that hallway, uh, and then just to walk in the theater without the worry of getting caught. Um, I used to like freak out about getting caught when I would sneak into like R-rated movies. So that's just one that came to mind. But the you greatest have that ticket theatrical... stub still? You have that ticket stub? I do. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I wish March twenty second. The the slip up of you being written up for sneaking into Shadow of a Vampire because I feel like if you I were wonder... to show Willem Dafoe that, like his mind would be blown. <laughs> it would. All right. So no, I agree with you. All right. So the ultimate theatrical experience, the best theater experience I've ever had in my entire life, uh, only because it was the first time this ever happened, was The Dark Knight um, at Udvar-Hazy in Chantilly, Virginia. Um, Udvar-Hazy is a science museum, air and space. Uh, they only really show science movies, plane movies and forest movies and earth films and things like that. Um, Chris Nolan, as we all know, has ch changed the game of filmmaking. He's changed the way we view films. He's made it a, a necessary thing to go to a movie theater and experience it. Um, I was, I've always been a big fan of how movies are made and kind of shots and how aspect ratios worked, but it wasn't until The Dark Knight that I truly understood how much a filmmaker's choices could impact how we as an audience experience their work. Um, and I think The Dark Knight was... Dark Knight's an interesting example because The Dark Knight was such a damn good movie, and it was also a gigantic film. It was a big film that everyone was talking about, and I always loved it for the movie, but I always felt like I loved it for the other reason, which was what it did for me as an audience member. I have never felt that type of immersion in action in my entire life. Um, seeing a, a six-story action scene play out in full-blown IMAX with no black bars on top and the bottom as we're dealing with the Joker uh, or an 18-wheeler truck is flipping in the streets of Chicago. I mean, these scenes, these monster, monster sequences blaring in my face. And I have, my peripheral vision is completely cut off. I am just in this world. Um, and as I sat there watching it, you know, the film opens on that gigantic shot. I believe it's, isn't the opening shot, the Joker standing on the corner? Yeah. With, mm -hmm. Okay. So it, it, it just, boom, blows up. And at that point, I didn't understand what Wally Pfister and, and Nolan were trying to achieve yet with this back and forth of like 35 mil and then full-blown IMAX back and forth. It was a little jarring at first. And then I started to understand the language that Chris Nolan was speaking as a filmmaker. Um, these jumps to gigantic images mixed with Hans Zimmer's score um, with performances that you would never see in a superhero film, in my opinion. I mean, Heath Ledger was it's one of the greatest performances of all time. Um, sitting in a theater and experiencing that with sold-out crowds multiple times was single-handedly... Like, I just felt like I was witnessing something 
that was revolutionary. Um, you know, when I saw The Matrix when I was 14, I knew what I was watching was oh. revolutionary from a visual standpoint, and clearly that was a big deal for me as a kid to see The Matrix. Um, and I think that's probably the most game-changing movie I've ever seen. But for me, theatrically, uh, I think Chris Nolan, I became a fan of Nolan that day. I mean, I, I, you know, my dad took me to see Memento when it came out in theaters in New York in, in 2001, so I already knew who he was. I just didn't understand what he was capable of. I also feel like Chris Nolan saved movie theaters in my personal opinion him and tarantino and, I, and again this is just a, a, a personal theory of mine but when you have somebody who actually goes out of their way to change the way we immerse ourselves to actually bring in cameras that are used for documentaries to film action and find a way to bring us a new experience that to me is just an extra layer of i care about you mm-hmm. and i want you to be immersed in my films and that, hands down, was the most revolutionary thing I'd ever seen, and it changed the way I felt about immersion and action forever. And that will be, hands down, one of the greatest memories of my life was seeing it at Udvar Hazi in Chantilly, Virginia, and it was just amazing. And then since then, Dunkirk, Interstellar, all in that same format, 70 millimeter IMAX. I will never go back. That's awesome. That's awesome. Great story. Um, Jakey, you're up. Um, for mine, just a little bit of context to kind of like make the story make sense. So before I moved to the suburbs of Houston, I grew up in that very, 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 very small, poor country town, but Buna, Texas, um, nearest movie theater was about an hour away. And I was there till I was 10 and grew up family was very poor. Like we didn't really have a lot, like to, to go to the movie theater was like a big deal. It was like a big, big, big deal to go to the movie theater. And I was also a very nerdy, avid reader as a kid like like reading books that i probably shouldn't have been reading like i was reading like stephen king and stuff like by by like third grade like just Mm -hmm. just blowing through stuff so in third grade i was blowing through michael Crichton's jurassic park and the lost world because uh the lost world was about to come out and jurassic park was my favorite film at the time so the idea that like a jurassic park 2 is coming out like for a third (laughs) grader is like the greatest thing you've ever heard in your entire life yeah yeah and the one thing about, like, Crichton's novels is that, like, there's language in them. And my third grade teacher picked up my copy of The Lost World. And keep in mind, like, Deep South, like, flipped, you know, like, flipped through the pages, saw oh, a bunch no. of swear words, yelled at me for, like, reading a book with, like, smut in it. Like, like why, like, why are you reading this? Called my folks, uh, like, reamed them out for, like, <laughs> letting me read this book with all these swear words in it. Right. And I remember just going home, just weeping, just just being so upset, like really genuinely thinking that I like had done something wrong, like like that I was a bad kid for having read this book. And my my parents were very much like, look, yeah, right. (laughs) And they're opening theaters early. And so my parents were very, very much like, look, you did nothing wrong. You're like, you know, and I was like, well, the other kids aren't reading these books. And I was like, is something wrong? Like, you know, and my parents were like, look, like, no, you're just reading books. We let you watch movies that other kids aren't allowed to watch. We let you read books that maybe other kids, it like doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. But I just like, it just dampered. Like everything, like I, I was so excited about that movie and it's just like, I wanted nothing. I was so upset. Like I didn't want anything to do with it anymore. I was just so bummed. So the last day of school, I remember my mom asking last day of third grade. I remember my mom asking me like, Hey, like what, what do you got to do on the last day? And I said, I just, well, just got to go turn in our books. And then I think we're just like having a pizza party or whatever. And she's like, okay, all right. So like, you know, went to school and like turn in my books. And that was like eight o'clock and by nine o'clock. My mom's at the door and like waves me over and she's like, Hey, come on, we're going to go. 
And I was like, oh, like the last day. She goes, come on, it's the last day. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Gets me in the car and we start driving. I'm like, what, what are we doing? She goes, we're like, today's like, I think it was like May 25th. Today's May 25th. And I was like, okay, yeah. She goes, Lost World came out today. And I was like, what? Yeah. And I keep in mind, like my mentality was I'll see Lost World like on VHS when it comes out. You know, yeah, we yeah. just didn't, we didn't have a ton of money. So my mom took off of work, took me out of school on the last day as a giant like F you to like, and I think she even like said to my teacher like, oh, I'm taking him to see the lost world and took me to that smut book yes and the best part was it was the opening day of because a lot of the movie theaters at that time they were going through were like one screen movie theaters maybe two screen and it was like the first big megaplex in beaumont texas it was an hour, hour drive away and i'll never forget like if you got an extra large soda you got a lenticular lost world cup and that was always like seriously that was also one of those things it's like oh that'd be really cool but like we don't get that kind of like when we go to the movies like we don't get that kind of stuff like that's yeah, not yeah, yeah. and i think my mom was caught me eyeballing it and she was like oh like you want the cut like extra like she went out of her way wow to and i will remember that to the like i was like maybe like 19 years old i will remember that that's until awesome. the day i die like her going out of her, like and, and even like she brought up like hey like i'm glad you're reading books like that like and like i'll never forget just being in there like the, the, a huge big multiplex like oh my god like mom they have they have like eight screens here, eight screens, like, and there were like eight different movies. And like just sitting there and just like doing this with a cup the whole time and Bling just unbelievably blown away by the lost world. I still, I still like the lost world. Um, and, and, but looking back now, 20 years later, realizing what my mom did going out of her way, taking off of work. Um, and she, they even, my dad, when he came on a VHS, went out and bought it. Once again, like we didn't really buy a ton of movies. Um, I think I told you this story about like having to beg my parents for a Terminator too. They, my dad went out on the first day and bought the Lost World VHS, and once again, it came with a lenticular cover hmm. where I would just sit there and do this little, like the little lentic, and I right. get my cup, yep. I get my cup, and I get my VHS and do my my little lenticular <laughs> thing. And and it's really it's a story that means more and more to me as the years pass because I really realized that like while my parents like my parents like movies like they like movies fine they're average, but they realized that they meant a lot to me. And went out of their way rather than like squash that because a lot of kids like things that their parents squash rather than go like, oh, that's not really what we're into. They just they said, said like, hey, this is what our kids into and we're going to we're going to do everything possible to go out of our way to make sure that like he is happy and, and that he loves that. So that is my awesome. that is my movie theater experience. Book. Great story. Awesome. Yeah, that yeah, is man. really, really good. Thanks Very for sharing cool. that. <laughs> that is so cool. All right. Um, mine is uh, also tied to the parenting and the boys. PJ specifically. Uh, Toy Story 3 came out in 2010 and PJ was six. He was born in 2004. And by the time that was coming out, he'd come to a couple of movies prior to this, um, but, but they weren't anything he was really all that interested in. He just came because it was like the animated movie. And so if he walked around throughout it, like we didn't really care. And, you know, right. he was marginally focused to it. But because, um, you know, when you're, raising a kid, you show them every animated film known to mankind. He's seen right. all the Pixar movies uh, a thousand times, you know, on road trips and, and just hanging out around the house. So he was like, you know, had seen the first two Toy Stories a thousand times. So that was one of the first times that he turned to me and he was like, um, oh, we're going to like, we watched those other two movies together. And I was like, yeah, we did. And he's like, and now there's like a new one and we can go to the theater and we can watch it together. And I was like, yes, we get to watch it together. And so we went to the press screening for it 
and um, we're bopping along and he knows all the characters and he doesn't understand the concept of a sequel, but like his friends are back on the big screen and he's enjoying it and uh, going through all the things. And Lotso is a little bit of a challenge because Lotso is a little bit scary. Um, but I'll remember very specifically, uh, he was sitting between Michelle and I and we get to the point um, when they're on the conveyor belt and they're heading toward the lava and he, without saying anything, um, gets up and climbs into my lap. And he's not scared, but he just knows that, like, they're not going to get out of this kind of thing, right? And I, so I'm holding him, and he, and uh, they're slipping through the stuff. They're slipping down, slipping down, starting to go. And th- I look over at Michelle, and I kind of gave her a look, and I was like, are they really not going to get out of this? Like, if you don't remember, like, that sequence oh, is... Oh, they're going to die. Uh, yeah, I thought like, they were going to con- yes. They convinced all of America, we're about to kill off your favorite character. That scene oh, was horrifying. Yes. I, I was scared. And um, the the characters join hands, right? And PJ's little hand falls onto my hand. Oh, and, wow. Um, and I thought, like, in my brain, I'm processing, like... I'm going to have about, this conversation after uh, this movie about why they killed off Buzz and Woody. I can't believe this. And they get saved and he gives a little like a cheer, like nothing big, but just enough where he was just like, oh, yes, you know, like, thank relieved. goodness. Yeah. And I will never forget like that feeling of just like his immersion uh, as a moviegoer. And it's funny That's because. literally suspension of disbelief. Literally suspension yes, of disbelief. Because he doesn't, he had at that point as a six-year-old, he has no clue that like, Oh, well, they'll never kill off the leads of a franchise. <laughs> you know, like he believed in that moment that the characters that he was invested in could potentially die. And yeah. so he totally relaxed in my lap and he's still sitting there. And the timing of it, I find really, really funny. And I say this because it's, you know, my boys, they like movies, but it's not their thing. And it's really funny, Jake, like you talk about your parents are super supportive about the thing. The movies were your thing. But for my boys, they're into completely different things. And I like to detach from films and then get into what they're super into uh, right now. And we do that for fun. But but because of that, that scene with the lava and PJ being scared and invested in that moment and how much I realized that like, movies can work on an audience like that, it meant he was sitting in my lap for the rest of the movie. And of course, the rest of the movie is Andy giving his toys away and growing up and moving on. And I just held that boy like, you know, because it was like because I was sobbing then at that point, like because it was here. We watched these movies together and here he's and he has no clue. But this is me now. Like, now I'm like, oh, what's the line? Uh, shoot. So, so long, partner. No, 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 no. Uh, oh, it's uh, it's um Vince Vaughn in Swingers. When he's talking about his audition and the guy behind the camera is crying and he goes, not so much for what I was doing because like he had his own thing going on. <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah, yeah. reminded of that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, PJ's just happy to it see that. It was for the kids you. That moment was for. like a moment for you to and, and somehow the universe put him in my lap, you know, prior to that, so that when Andy gave his toys away, I was able to hold wow. them that much closer and, and uh and bond with them. So Have I will you never told him that story? Um no, probably not. Uh no, I don't, I don't think so. But and he won't listen to this show. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing story, man. You should put that yeah. in your book. I'll put it in a book someday. Someday soon. I'll write a parenting book. But anyway, that's my theater-going experience um, at a... At, and I can tell you, Regal uh, Phillips' place uh, here in Charlotte, press screening. I know exactly what row we were sitting in and what seat we were yeah. sitting in because that's what happens when you have these moments. They just... They connect to you on such a, deep lo- such a deep level. So you guys Kevin, shared- didn't you meet Lauren on a, at a screening? Well, it's funny. I was going to bring that up, but I, I just didn't. Um, it wasn't like the best theater experience story because like we physically met 
in the movie theater. We were both on separate dates at that time. She was with a oh, long-term boyfriend. Um, but it's kind of a sad story why I was there. But a buddy of mine, it's kind of weird, to be honest, how things in life happen. But I wasn't supposed to be at that safe house screening, the, the which is the movie I met Lauren at for the first time. And I was supposed to be in New York to see that for the junket. Um, and my buddy's brother, this is such a downer, um, died in a house fire. Um, and I wanted, and he had to leave his current position to go help take care of his brother's restaurant, um, in, in North Carolina, actually it's South, no ECU and yeah, ECU, yeah. Mm-hmm. um, you know, sup dogs is the name yeah, of yeah, the, you're, uh, you're talking about yeah. that one. Yeah. So his brother, Derek, um, started sup dogs and his brother, uh, unfortunately passed away in a house fire. So Brett had to go to North Carolina and gave up his entire radio producing, uh, career that he'd been building for years to go continue his brother's business. And now it's extremely successful. He opened one at UNC mm-hmm. and now he's one at ECU. Um, and so the reason why I did, I was at that screening was because I just, I had to cancel on the junket because I wanted to be there for his going away event. Cause I, he was one of my best friends. I'd known him for years and, you know, and that was a, you know, safe house was like, I was gonna sit down with Denzel Washington and Ryan Reynolds. And like, you know, it just, there was no other decision to make. I was going to be there for my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I wasn't at that screening, I don't know when we would have met. I know we had started following each other on social media at that point, but to physically meet for the first time, all that had to happen in a weird, um, bittersweet, messed up way. But that's yeah, the that universe was working though. That's yeah. yeah. yeah but the movie itself was, eh. but I mean, it was, it, that will always be a forever. A very, I remember standing on the steps of the aisle of the Regal Gallery Place movie theater. I, I remember that night, finding parking in Gallery Place, Chinatown, D.C. I had to walk like a mile to the theater. You remember these weird things, right? And I remember yeah. standing on the staircase with the person I brought from um, from my work and seeing Lauren and her boyfriend. And I was like, I knew I already knew Lauren was the one because we had already talked on social media. Uh, and it was just the, uh, yeah, I'll just never forget it. So that was, um, thank you for bringing that up. I, I was actually d- debating on using that, but it wasn't necessarily about the movie itself or the it was more about just what happened within the, before the movie started. But yeah, that's awesome. I love it. Um, audience picks. Anna Luis uh, mentioned seeing back to the future part two on October 21st, 2015 one time only showing in a small independent cinema packed with people, parents bringing kids to see it for the first time, everyone cheering and laughing like the jokes were brand new. Such a great night. She says Dennis Cox adds my favorite Theater experience blend was going to see a re-showing of Star Wars A New Hope in theaters back in the late 1980s. The energy in the theater was palpable. And then Michelle Garrist um, has a great Washington, D.C. story. Kevin, you're going to like this a lot. My fondest theater-going experience is when I was 14 Can I years guess? old. Sure. Before and you say is was something to do with... Um... Oh my God, I'm blanking. That famous theater in D.C. It just closed. Um, Uptown. The Uptown. The Uptown. Yes. Okay. Yeah. My fondest theater going experience is when I was 14 years old and I saw Independence Day at the Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C. My mom owned a print shop in D.C. And during the summers, I would have to help her out at the shop. Sometimes I would steal a little money from the register because I was an (laughs) annoying teenager and walk around the city playing tourist. I think that's really funny. During the summer of 96, I made my way up Connecticut Avenue to the Uptown Theater and bought a ticket to Independence Day. It starred Will Smith and Bill Pullman. And of course, I was going to watch a movie featuring the Fresh Prince and Lone Star. I sat in the balcony section near the railing so I could look down at the people below. And when that movie started, I was blown away. I fell in love with movie theaters that day and I spent the rest of that summer 
watching Independence Day at the Uptown at least once a week. Movie theaters mean a lot to me. They are my sanctuary and what I turn to if I need to reset. Thank you, Real Blend, for giving us the chance to show our love. And oh, I love obviously, that. that. Yeah. Is that an email? Uh, uh, that is an email, yes. I was say, that's a lot of I'm, tweets. I'm, I'm pretty sure Michelle came to our uh, meetup. I think that's she was at awesome. the DC meetup. So, and, uh, Great and story, Michelle. Stopped by to say hello. So thank you very much for sharing that story. And the Uptown is, Kevin can vouch for this too, it's one of the most special Great. movie houses. Uh, it's only two screens, giant theaters, and uh, it's just, I, I hate that it, it just recently closed and it kills it me. It used to be Cinerama. It used to have three cam projections. Oh, did it really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was a wonderful place to see a movie. So um, next week, we are going to be uh, playing our last of the decade games, Underrated 2010 Blend. So you can go back through our old episodes and, and catch what we picked for, uh, we started at the 70s, right? We didn't go back to the 60s, I don't think. Think I think we did 70s, 70s 80s, yeah. 90s, 2000s, yeah. and now we're going to do underrated 2010 blend. So give us your choice for a movie that came out from 2010 to now uh, that you feel doesn't get enough attention. I'm going to go to reviews. Uh, this one is coming from Amiela, Amelia. Um, it's a long name. It's a, it's a A-M-I-I-A-L-I-A. And it's one of those <laughs> names where when you look at it, the, the vowels kind of dance around. Does that happen to you guys at all? No, nothing. Just me. It's never mind. The only movie podcast I will listen to is her subject matter. Since we've been in quarantine, I've done nothing but binge episodes of Real Blend. Well, that right there is just the greatest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Quality content, uh, just enough balance of personal and professional opinions. I often find myself giving my opinions to no one during the blend games. Well, except <laughs> for my dog, Indiana, who listens attentively. Nice, Indiana. Thank you very Remember much. Remember the dog, Indiana. Everyone should give this podcast a listen. Dunkirk, in exclamation point, and all capitals. And then she says, confession. While I think Dunkirk is visually beautiful, I didn't like the movie and found the characters not memorable. Sorry, Kevin. Kev? I mean, I just have no response to that, unfortunately. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I saw the movie nine times. I'm not, I, I don't want to go down that path because Gabe's just going to wrap me up. <laughs> yes, the movie's will. a masterpiece. All right. So I will plug the T-shirt once again. Uh, this is a uh, exclusive Real Blend design. Thank you for listening, by the way. Something that we came up with because we wanted to uh, raise some money for charity. It's going to the Will, Round, uh, Will Rogers Foundation. We have raised over $1,100 so far. We sold 95 t-shirts. We set the new goal for 100. Uh, obviously, it'll extend beyond that. We set it for 16 days, so you guys have a little bit more time to get it. But once this design is done, it's going to be gone. You will not be able to get it anymore. So please grab a t-shirt um, before all of this comes to an end. We'll plug it a few more times. We'll be back next week on the show where we're going to uh, continue to try to get to have some really interesting guests Topping the Russo brothers seems like a tough one for us to do, but I uh, uh, have a lot of confidence in our ability to wrangle some friends to come by and join us on the show. So in the meantime, uh, follow us on social media at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, and at Sean underscore O'Connell. You can follow the whole show at at Real Blend, uh, and you can send us an email with your underrated 2010s blend at realblend at cinemablend.com, or a review, which we'll read at the end of the show. Uh, until next week. 4 8 15, Kevin, 16, 23, and 42. Oh, he's there. Gosh. He made it. That's right. Um, all right, there you go. That's our ending. See you next week. Dunkirk. <laughs>
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.